0: How's it going, man? What's up? How you doing? I found out that we were recording one hour ago, which is four hours earlier than I started drinking. So, nice.
1: Let's see what happens. I invited uh, Phil on and my other buddy, Mark, who are the only two car guys that I know personally, so they may join and hang out. What's up, Brian? Yeah, hey, how's it going? So, Connor's kind of saying this, this will be... Uh, the last one, I think. I'm gonna to hesitate to say that at the start. I'll wait until we actually wrap it up and say that that's the last one because there's a good chance. I feel like there's a good chance we could like end up not getting through all the stuff, but who knows? I just know that I our mean, nature. Granted,
0: we take our time getting through the material. There's really not a lot left to cover here. What's From what I hear, no one wants to work anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what I keep hearing. I mean, I don't want to work I, if yeah, I could be. Retired I was right now.
0: surprised at the no one wants to work anymore rhetoric, because I was like, when did people want to work before? Right.
3: Yeah. When was that something that was a reality?
0: When was the time that you didn't have to coerce us with, like, the threat of homelessness and starving? Yeah. <laughs> <and whatnot? laughs>
4: I mean, people want to do some work, but it's not like work for other people. You know, exactly. I've been working on a project all day, but it's just what I want to be doing, not
3: actual work. Oh, yeah. I have like a million other things that I could be doing so many little projects that I would love to be working on. But, you know, when over 50 percent of my waking life goes to a job, I can't make the time.
1: What's up, Mark? What's going on, Phil?
0: Phil, All that I'm hearing. Hey, buddy. Sorry about the hug. Yeah, I was, was going to say the cool thing about being on call with you is that you can't hug me, even if you want
3: to. <laughs> Very true.
4: I'm sorry, man. I made up for it. Remember? I donated to uh, Philly Bail Fund.
0: <laughs> a lot of good that does me in Pittsburgh. You suggested it. <laughs> okay, I accept that. <laughs> a Blues Brothers Antifa shirt. What'd you say, dude? Is that a Blues Brothers Antifa hoodie? Yes, it is. Fuck
4: Illinois Nazis. Oh, nice. I didn't see that. How's the van going, man? Fun. Nice. No, that was a genuine question. I thought you said fun. You said which one? Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, the one you and Tom are working on.
0: Um. Well, once it's a roller, I'm just going to ship it back here to Pittsburgh to actually, like, start getting it ready.
4: Yeah, it makes sense. That's a hell of a trip from Pittsburgh. Especially all your bridges fucking collapsing out there.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't want to risk driving it over anything because who knows if I'll make it. Don't worry, Biden's there to save you, though. No, he said he was going to fix it. I'm really looking forward to you know him finally
1: <laughs> doing literally anything. I like that the solution is like a a $1.6 billion package when the last $2.4 billion package went to the police. It got diverted from fixing the bridges to the state police. And their plan is another smaller package in the same way, so it's like, alright, cool.
4: Don't worry, man, we're out of a war and we had a larger military budget this year. Because fuck <laughs> the
1: it. is going to kick in any minute now.
0: We had to prepare to defend fascists in the Ukraine, so...
1: <laughs> and, you know, lose all
2: those jets in uh, the South China Sea. What? That, uh, that F-35 crashed in the South China Sea and they've... They've wrecked, like, three boats trying to recover it from the bottom of the ocean. That's fucking hilarious. I didn't know that. (laughs) That's even better.
4: As far as, like, everybody's names, this is something I'm probably going to have to watch. I know Mark very well, so, like, I'll try not to use your last name uh, because that's probably a really good idea. I just realized that I, like, did it in
1: this chat, which is probably not a big deal, but, like... I mean, I will cut anything and everything, you know. Hold on,
5: where is it? I gotta write it down. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just... Curious about who we're
4: talking <laughs> to. My social security number is <laughs> Mark Sanchez.
1: If you guys wanted, we can then do car updates if you want to just start with that.
5: Yeah, we could do that. Um I think I'm gonna be stuck on a blue screen this time, guys. Sorry. That sucks, but whatever. fun. I mean, um, yeah, I'm let's we much. could do that. Yeah, let's do car updates, but uh, let's try and keep them somewhat brief because I do have a lot of shit. <laughs> obviously i always do so i know uh
4: mark's got a fun car update on his like not that it like is pertaining to yours but
1: we both have shit we gotta do on ours i was gonna ask are both of your car updates going to be miatas oh absolutely (laughs) great (laughs) i'm
2: I'm a former miata owner so i'm jazzed about that i got an na if you want to buy one real cheap i'd love to sell it to a comrade (laughs) I am thinking of selling my Subaru, but I was thinking of buying a hybrid instead. But we can get to that, you know. Okay. <laughs> the Toyota Rav4, the new ones, the
4: fastest Toyota they make. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I I heard that. Yeah, for like zero to sixty or what? Yeah, there's zero to sixty on the the Toyota Rav4 hybrid. Is I mean I don't count the uh, the BMW that they're they're releasing as a Toyota. So when you uh, don't count that. Yeah, it's the uh, fastest
0: one. I think the 0-60 is like, I don't know, five seconds or something. actually bothered to late. look at my insurance policy this weekend, and I'm thinking about selling several things.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just paid mine, too. I did
4: not realize how many things I still had insured. I had a bonus from work come in, and it was like, come in and then went right out for uh, insurance stuff.
0: I just like, as a rule, make more money than I spend. So I don't ever pay attention to how much I make or how much I spend. And yeah, I had it's a, dangerous. Like, well, I mean, because of the way my anxiety works, it's actually beneficial because I, the longer I don't look at my bank account, the more I assume I have spent and the more I get paranoid and stop spending money. It's whatever. Good shirt.
5: Yeah. Dude, this is like my favorite yeah. shirt ever. I love it. What is it? Street Fight? Oh nice. With the anvil there. That is pretty cool. It is a solid shirt. Yeah.
0: Uh my Street Fight <laughs> shirt is one of my best fitting shirts. I wear it like all the fucking time.
5: Yeah. They're fucking quality shirts. I think they're union made and all that, so Oh nice.
2: I should get one of those, yeah. especially if they're coming back to Denver again. I, uh, that reminds me though that what was it. Uh, Brian was talking about all the like subscription services that he signed up for and like how much he spends on like HBO Max and whatever. <laughs> it's like I don't want to. I don't want to look at how much I spend on all those things.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did adds up, and you're just like, oh, I have um. So I use one of those budgeting apps, which are actually pretty good, but I have let mine lapse for a few months, and I'm just like, I have hundreds of transactions that i need to put into categories i'm just like i don't want to do it yeah but that sounds terrible (laughs) it is when you let it lapse but like for a long time i was really good about it and it really helped me be a lot less paranoid about money because like when i wasn't tracking shit i was just like i'm broke i'm i'm out (laughs) <laughs> totally broke and you know my my partner keeps telling me like you're absolutely not broke Please, like what are you talking about i'm like i am very poor i am next to homelessness and she's like no just look at where your money goes and you'll understand that you're fine and then i did and i was like oh yeah i'm fine well you know yeah
4: you know, it's funny i feel like there's especially on the left there's like two kind of people there's like uh i was at like a punk show this weekend and those dudes are actually on the line of being like impoverished and they just don't ever worry about money. And then there's the people that read like a lot of like theory and they're like constantly scared. Capitalism is going to crush them every day.
5: I I feel like it really does make it so much worse. Cause I'm just like, Oh, I realize that like I'm precarious as shit. They could fire me tomorrow. And that's that. Yep, like exactly. people don't understand. They're like, Oh, I'll be fine. I'm like, where you, what, the, what do you mean? Fine. <laughs> None of us will be fine. <laughs> I'll be fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, in your case, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think all of us can work with our hands. I think we will be all right like My house yeah. is
0: paid off. I'll be fine. Yeah, that's amazing,
4: dude. That's a that is a fucking win.
0: Yeah, capitalism sucked my fucking dick. I beat it. Now I'm just about helping my comrades. I obviously didn't beat it, but like, you know, for my own personal thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's far less onerous when you're not worried about, like, having a place to live. Yeah, I'm just worried about whether or not I can rebuild whatever dumb vehicle I've recently purchased.
3: Speaking about terrible with money, someone just posted a 240SX for sale. Ooh. It's a okay. shift. They want ten grand for it. It looks super clean. It's got... Oh, it's got so many parts. It's an NA SR25, I think
5: whoa what what is it an sr20 that's like the common swap for 240s
3: it might be a 20 i can't tell all they have is a picture of the fucking valve cover uh it's probably oh, what the fuck oh it's ak 24d
5: oh that's the norm well hold on. is it a k is it a kat or is it just no. a KA? no just a ka24 10 grand these motherfuckers <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good price, honestly. Like compared to the other shit I see. No, not for KA. Oh. Not for K. I don't give a fuck, Fuck. man.
4: I I will never pay 10 grand for a 240. Like it just would I I couldn't I I
0: couldn't bring myself to do it. I've never felt more alienated during car talk. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it is to feel like Mike when we we're all talking about cars This is all the same to me. <laughs> I am suddenly on the same page as Mike. I mean, Mike, you're sitting on a gem over there. Your car
4: is going to run forever because you don't fuck with it. Yeah.
6: <laughs>
5: yeah. They got that's, 180 that's on it
6: now. Hey, there it goes. Hey, there's that pretty face What's going on Mark. We can all look into my mess of a basement. Wait. Wait, so I know the one guy's working on a van and the other guy clearly has a 350. What is what's everybody's
4: no, we we were talking about somebody found a 240 for
6: sale. Oh, for like how much? Ten grand. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I mean, in this market, in this market, in
3: this economy, yeah, that's an fucking deal. Yeah. No, it's
2: not. <laughs> so no, it was... isn't. I will re- I
3: refuse to concede that. No, it really is ridiculous. Dude,
0: I will sell you an N.A. Miata for $2,000. It runs. (laughs) (laughs) The sudden price increase in cars has turned me into a boomer in six months. (laughs) 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 Like, three grand for this shitbox? Absolutely not. As to where, like, a year ago it was $500 and I was still reluctant.
2: I was yeah. just poking around online and I saw a Ford Festiva from like 1992 for like 5000 bucks. What the fuck? That's insane. Now granted, it was in good shape, but still, like no Ford Festiva is worth that much. Like,
0: it was in good shape because no one ever wanted to drive a Ford
1: Festiva. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So I'll make the opposite argument,
4: just for like devil's advocate, right? That car probably gets almost 50 miles to the gallon. What car can you buy that it was probably reasonably reliable that gets 50
0: miles to the gallon that isn't a hybrid? Uh, I'm sorry. I measure a thing in smiles per gallon. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen you smile. I don't do it. Everything I own gets zero smiles to the gallon. <laughs> That's how I measure them.
5: <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's start with our updates, and let's try and do, I don't know, regular alphabetical order which I think would put Brandon Bryant. I'm going to have to do the ABCs real quick. P in front of M or what? P. <laughs> <M-Vin-P>. Okay. <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, that will do uh, with Mark here and then Phil and then Zach, your last as usual. Sweet. Love it. <laughs> so, Brandon, what do you got? Oh, uh, easy. I didn't do anything
0: to anything this week. I just worked a lot. Okay. Fair enough.
5: That's capitalism, yeah. I suppose.
0: Yeah, I, I've been working a lot because it's somehow good for my mental health, but it is what it is. I've done no car things. All right, moving along.
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I haven't done a whole lot of car stuff myself either, other than editing the podcast and driving a lot. I went and uh, saw my family for my dad's birthday. And uh, my Sabaru... Still has that fuel leak that I haven't fixed, and on my last tank it got 16 miles per gallon. (laughs) <laughs> so um but how many smiles per gallon <laughs> <laughs> uh negative smiles per gallon because oh. i can hate that car right now <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's usually how that goes when there's a problem it goes down <laughs> yeah i so. hate that you have a fuel leak and still get
2: better gas mileage than everything <laughs> i own <laughs> yeah and it's got snow tires on it too that's probably not helping the mileage fuck you So you're telling me a
4: car that was built by Chevy Subaru and partially by Saab isn't reliable and wonderful to drive all the time. I mean,
2: like a real Chevrolet, it runs uh, poorly uh, longer than most cars run at all. Oh, that's fine. So yeah, it has some problems that I can maybe fix or I might ditch it and get a hybrid because one of the things I've realized is commuting is uh, making me insane. And I hate it. I moved, you know, in the last year and I have a lot longer commute and um, it fucking sucks. And I'm thinking of getting something that gets good mileage and is a little bit more comfortable and, you know, worry free. So maybe a, a hybrid of some kind. But we'll see. I haven't uh, pulled the trigger on that. But um, I yeah, this is where I should remind
0: got. everyone that my willingness to buy like a more fuel efficient vehicle. It opened the gateway to me somehow owning a 74 Ford.
2: <laughs> i had to, I just had to
0: open my mind to, to owning another vehicle and then suddenly i forgot about fuel efficiency and bought something i like so like <laughs> just be wary of that slippery slope
2: well i mean it does get better mileage right it's got a it's got a six and everything else has a v8 right i just wrote
0: down my mileage the other day so when, when i got gas so i'll let you know in a week i was gonna say is it gonna be one number or two It's going to be one. (laughs) I've been doing a lot of city driving, so probably one. Fair. I'm trying to be optimistic and think maybe I'm getting like 12 or 13. Wow. (laughs) Well, you should definitely put a turbo on it. That will make it much better. (laughs) (laughs) A turbo will come after an overdrive transmission and longer highway
2: gears. That makes sense.
5: Fair enough. Well, I guess that'd be me then. Um, I'm still having... Various issues with the Z. Uh, I went to the shop and the idle is much better because they added a hose somewhere because the cams are a bitch and they didn't decide to include instructions about that. But uh anyway, some digging. We found a hose we can add, which helped fix the idle, but it still does kind of rev up randomly and shit. So uh it's going back to the tuner for the fourth time now, hoping for the best. So and you
4: have, have a done. 350, right? With the VQ yeah. engine?
5: Yep. Yep. So I hope they find something because like it's a pain in the ass. Like it works. It it does work. But like something is wrong and we've pretty much gone through everything mechanical we can think of. So it's going to have to go back to the tuner. And uh, yeah, that's that's where we're at. So just a pain in the ass. So that's where that's at. And then. I did have to uh, move all my rear interior parts to my storage unit, uh, and they are taking up a lot of space. So I'm committing here on the air. I'm going to put my interior back this spring. No more delays. It's nice. been years, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for real.
4: Now I'm going to stop drinking.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Bro. What about that weight savings, though, dude?
5: I swear to God, I, it is like maybe 10 pounds of interior parts and I was just like uh, the whole reason I took it out was never about weight it was to fit more wheels and tires for a drift event and I did not fit more wheels and tires so it was fucking pointless
2: <laughs> all right fair <laughs> enough so so you're yeah. saying a 350z is not a good pickup truck
5: uh correct correct it is not um in all that, of me shocked yeah it, well in that instance to go to that drift event I did tie the uh Wheels up on the roof and drove for many hours. It worked. It was sketchy, but it worked. Going to hopefully not have to do that anymore. But I yeah. would just like to interject here
0: that as a van owner, I've never had to tie tires <laughs> to the roof.
5: <laughs> Noted.
4: There's a guy we do autocross with that uh, has a trailer for his Miata, so he pulls no leads, plates, no, no plates. plates, no plates, <laughs> no plates, and like the smallest trailer tires that I've ever seen I think they might be like 8s like 8s <laughs> and he was pulling it on the highway which means that tire was doing I don't know like 12,000 RPMs <laughs> came in and the wheel bearings like I put my hand near them Smoke and they God, were just God. smoking hot <laughs> smoking
2: Jesus
4: uh let's go Felix yeah that dude rocks <laughs> he's a good dude but
2: yeah. I was gonna not, say is not, that like your version of Let's Go Brandon
6: or something that I missed the talk? No, no. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe he blew up his Miata at the last event. I fucking felt terrible for that guy. Based on what I've heard,
0: I can't believe his Miata made it to the last event. <laughs> he is the guy that like believes that it's gonna work out no matter
4: what. And he's not a half bad mechanic. But like he thinks that the fix that he just buggered together is going to work forever, and it's like his belief in those eight-inch tires not blowing up. He believed that his Miata wasn't going to either.
6: That's cool. He's going to get that BMW working, and then that will be the track car. Oh my god!
4: There was he. He bought a BMW that somebody flipped at an event.
0: Nice. No, he- is our entire podcast about why if you want your car to run, you shouldn't be a car person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah, Pretty that's much. like,
5: these are horror stories. These car updates are horror stories. <laughs> yeah, but nothing we own runs. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's horror stories. Take them away. Everyone on our show currently has a car that is in some way blown up.
4: Hey, both of my Miatas are running to various degrees.
6: My Miata runs like a top. Yeah.
2: Damn. Hey, and and if, if I put the battery back in my MR2, it would start right now until what? the cooling system overheated. So What MR2 is it? That's Weird. an 86.
0: Nice. Yeah. Nice. If I put new rear wheels on my Cutlass and, like, cross my fingers really hard, I could drive it around. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, uh, anyway, uh, Mark, I think, uh, let's hear what you got going
6: this week was a lot of uh shoveling out neighbors cars, but we did um I think it was last weekend or the weekend before we did suspension. We put Coney Yellows on my buddy's uh Mazda Speed Three. Oh nice. Um so that was pretty Sick. cool because that was that was like a little bit of a learning experience because I'm gonna be doing that to my autocross Miata when it's done being cold and snowy outside. So have plans for Coney's front and rear Probably do like a new sway bar on the front and those like sway bar blocks and have some pads and rotors we got to do on your car. Yeah, pads and rotors, just some other little stuff because real excited about autocross starting up in April and want to try to get all that together well beforehand so we can do some like test and tune kind of stuff. But besides that, not too much going on, just. Some fun plans, though. Yeah, and looking forward to all the snow going away, try to get the motorcycles. Back out on the road right now we're just battery tender and uh you know watching them be cold in the garage <laughs>
4: yeah, are you still selling the uh the one the uh, Honda I really Honda. should
6: i i don't ride I don't ride it as much like it's a great bike I've definitely put less than a thousand miles on it, but whereas like I probably put five thousand on the Kawasaki just last summer alone what's the Honda I have a nt 700v it's the it's like a sport tour so little little five speed um shaft drive sports tour it's okay. a great bike i got it i got it with the idea that my wife was like ah, i like going on motorcycle rides with you but you know she didn't feel so comfortable on the uh my kawasaki is a is just like a ninja 500 so like it's not the best two-up motorcycle so i got the sport tour And we did like one long trip all around like Jersey shore. And I think that's the last time she's been on it. (laughs) That was two summers ago at this point. (laughs) But yeah, it's a great bike going to trim down the stable and uh, just focus more on just like actual riding this year. Also bicycle riding. Yeah. Also bicycle riding. Also just more time autocrossing and less time repairing cars. Hopefully this year. (laughs) yeah we we set up like three cars we set up multiple last, cars last season,
4: yeah in the last couple of years, and then I also had to do so I do all my work at Mark's house, so anytime I'm working on a car, he's working on a car and vice versa so I also had a lot of my fiance's car needed a bunch of work last year, so we did a bunch of work on that, and then all of the other cars that you own too we did. Suspension on your Lancer, like. Oh, we just need day. to do the fronts on that. We need to do the fronts on
6: that. <laughs> and Highway 95 is just destroying, destroying the suspension on that car. PA needs to use their money for uh, roads and not cops. What? Maybe, <laughs> maybe oh, my I, I can, can verify. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I'm. You know, listen, are you done, Mark? Because I'm going to go. on the oh, yeah. I, yeah.
5: I go go for it.
4: <laughs> my my fucking car thing this week was I, I got my snow tires on recently. Like my car's pretty. My uh, to me, honestly, the uh, two thousand is like the actual nice car. I found a two thousand guy with like sixty thousand miles on it. Um, Sweet. Yeah, that's an, that's NB, right? Yeah, it's an NB. Okay. Yep. So it's got the same motor, but with like slightly more. It's like the nine and a half to one compression. Instead of a nine, something like that. So a little bit more horsepower. Respect- better, but all around way
0: better. Now when you say a little bit more, that's like what, 75, 80? <laughs> the wheels actually, yes.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whatever, man, it's coaster car.
4: Um <laughs> uh, but so I got my got my shit inspected because I got like two parking tickets or I like, two inspection tickets, but I barely ever drive the thing. I got a work van. But just trying to pay the motherfucking PPA has been the most goddamn infuriating thing in my life. Like what is the the, PPA. Oh Philadelphia, Philadelphia parking authority. Oh yeah. He's in Pittsburgh and he fucking knows this. <laughs> I mean you know I lived in Philly for eight years, right? Oh, I didn't know that actually. So oh, yeah. yeah, you've had your fair share of dealing with them. But yeah, so here's a real fucked up thing about the PPA is that all the like fines that they get, they go to Harrisburg. So it's literally wealth extraction from the city to fund bullshit like Republican state that just politics. The state
6: general fund?
4: State general fund does not go to, I don't know, Philly roads. It's
0: infuriating. Like that, that seems so wrong. That's fucking wild. I have yeah. questions about that because the PPA is a private entity. Yes, and it's and the PPA is a private entity. So, so there is the most thing ever.
4: They invented a private police force. To extract wealth and give it to like the Republicans in the state Senate.
5: Nice. Yeah,
4: it's great. <laughs> I
0: love That everything. has worked out to my advantage because I owe, like, because the PPA is privately owned, they can't sick the police on you as easily as if they were an actual like. Yeah. So I owe them hundreds of dollars and I'm just never going to pay it. God bless you. Yes, that is the correct answer. Yeah.
5: Fuck the people I don't they own that.
0: the car that got all
4: those tickets anymore. Fuck them. Yeah, exactly. Fuck those people.
5: Uh, be careful with that, though, because uh, that stuff can go to collections and fuck you later.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. You missed the memo where I don't give a fuck about my credit. <laughs> I, think, I
5: figured. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten enough collection calls for tickets and shit that I'm like, all right. Happens every, you know, six months or every year. At some point, I'll get some phone call. We're a deck collector collecting. And I'm like, for tickets I didn't even know I had. I'm like, these motherfuckers, man. I feel like they just make them up half the time. I'm like, come on. I didn't know nothing. What are you talking about? Hate it. Fucking hate it.
0: They were making them up. Some expert advice there. If you're constantly getting calls from collection agencies, stop paying your phone bill.
6: (laughs) Modern problems, modern
0: solutions. (laughs) (laughs) I've literally done this. It took them years to find me again. (laughs) <laughs> okay well shit that's interesting no I did go completely without a phone for six months to a year I don't remember but I mean like if you're willing to do that
4: you're good well that's like the people who just leave the country instead of paying like their student loans
0: which I fully support Like,
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I kind of wish that I had student loans so I could do that
0: you don't need student loans to leave the country
2: this is a good
0: <laughs> place just give on it. Cool. So that's
4: it. Fuck the PPA. That's my car update.
5: Okay. <laughs> Damn, and a
4: bunch a of
1: Fucking assholes.
3: Yeah. Is that me? All right, Mike. You, you got car stuff sometimes. You got me. I um. My I only car speak. update.
1: I think I already said on a previous episode to you guys, but I don't think I told Mark and Phil. You guys were the ones helping me in the group chat to like try and diagnose my car issue when my Toyota would not start. And uh, so I'm so bummed right that up. you left right before your car problems happened. <laughs> no, you're going to be even more bummed when you hear what it was, dude. It's, it's fucking stupid. I had it towed to the local shop. Didn't cost anything for that, luckily, you AAA. But all for them to tell me that it started with my spare key. It was because I fucked with the key fob. And so yep. then I was able to mangle together, like, pieces of the new key fob that I bought with the important parts of the old one and some super glue, and now I have, like, a working, functional, nice key fob. You know, warm, Yeah, you, there's like a, carry a little too. chip in there. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah. there must be, so that's what that's did it. I had to pay them sixty five dollars to tell me that. And uh yeah. So. That's actually not bad for a shop. Like a diag fee for sixty five bucks is it's just is annoying because, because like <laughs> you know. But whatever. Oh yeah, it's super fucking annoying, but yeah. yeah. But that's my only car update, which again, yeah, I, I had told the other guys, but not you guys. So go ahead, Zach.
3: Oh yeah, I was just raring to go, man. because uh, I did fucking nothing. Um, not a goddamn thing
5: <laughs> I, mean, I was like a good week
3: sometimes dude I was super sick all week I literally did nothing like I didn't go to work I barely got out of bed I was like ah oh, fuck I knew I was going to get it eventually this is my time it's the Rona it got me oh, no. oh. oh shit I, I didn't know you, you had no see that's the thing I fucking didn't two tests oh. both negative I was hacking up, huh. up a lung my lungs you, were like on fire had the Rona. I felt like shit dude you're- I don't know. I like I, I went to a place. They did a test. I it came back negative. Couple of days later, I still felt like shit. I went to a doctor. I was like, look, I got a negative test. It's got to be something else. But like you can recheck just to be sure they tested. Nope, it's not covid. It wasn't strep throat. It wasn't fucking anything else. They're just like I don't know I, your body's shitty. I don't know what to tell you.
4: Like, <laughs> yeah, you when I, like when I got stuff. COVID, I took a couple tests and then finally I like popped positive and like same symptoms. So so yeah, weird. it could be, could yeah. be, but who knows, right? Um, yeah, well either way, I'm glad you're feeling better.
3: Yeah, I'm totally good now. I, I still followed quarantine protocol just because you know obviously I'm coughing and sick, so I don't want to get anyone sick, no matter what it is. But yeah, exactly. I, and both both the tests were uh, they weren't even like the rapid ones uh, where you get the results back real quick because uh, I hear oh, that, they're Say like, I, They were like the one to three day ones, and both times, yeah, they're like no. Nope. And one of them was administrated by a doctor in a doctor's office, so I don't fucking wow. even know.
5: Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound like COVID. Then it sounds like you yeah. got something else, which I've been worried about this. The next time I get a fucking cold, it's gonna knock me out. I- I'm like. Oh, yeah. I haven't had a cold in two years. I'm like, you know, it's going to be bad when I get something is going to hit hard. Oh yeah.
0: If I can do a slightly different rant. Yeah, go for it. The production that I'm working on the, because anyone who's not in the loop here, I, I work in IOTC. I work in the film industry. Two of our big actors on this movie got positive COVID tests. And then like two days later got negative tests. So they're like, Oh It was a false positive. We're good. Oh, my God. So they're fully at the point where they're just ignoring positive COVID tests and filming anyway. Yeah.
3: You know, no one ever accused actors of being too smart. So (laughs) I'm not surprised by that. The
0: thing is, it's not even the actors, man. It's it's the production. Like, I I heard one person say, and I don't know if this is true, that 50% of the people on this show have gotten COVID. Oh my God, that doesn't mean actors, that means construction and electric and special effects and fucking everything. I mean, I believe
1: it. That's really just to the larger point of, because also I think for timing purposes, because these episodes take me so long to put out and everything, we are at the end of January right now. And so this is right around the time of the CDC changing their policy to like just quarantine for five days, just fucking quarantine on the way to work or whatever, like just fucking you know, get tests until you test positive, and then fucking go to work. Like, yeah, the first I mean, like, positive
5: yeah. test you get, it's back to work, buddy.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> your boss needs you. But I mean, yeah. so that is the national policy, and like, and I just saw the headline yesterday that the deaths from Omicron have now reached the levels of every other variant because everyone has been treating it as if it were mild. So then that just racks up the deaths because more people get it. So completely nullifies any effects of it being mild because now more people are getting it because, and also because it is more contagious. So. That's where we're at now. We are just like kind of mask off with the eugenics, like eat shit and die. If you're one of the unlucky ones who dies from this and you're not vaccinated or whatever it is. So yes, you love to see it. I mean, and I think
4: the big thing that I saw when, uh, like when they did the changeover on the five days for quarantine was like, it's how companies are building policies. Companies were giving like two weeks off and they were giving their employees extra time. So when people are getting it now, they're not getting any extra time off and they have to use their own time because they're following CDC guideline. And those that guideline change affects the way that companies feel able to write their policies and gives them more latitude beyond just telling you to come into work. It's like, okay, if you're sick, burn your own time. It's not on us anymore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Brandon. Do it like, Okay, so I had COVID a little over three months ago. And at my job, the official policy is for 90 days, you're exempt from testing because we test two to three times a week. If you get COVID, you're exempt for 90 days. If you want a look into how seriously they're taking it. Some of my friends that I got COVID with the first round got COVID again already. And I got exposed at least three times. So I went, the week before I was officially supposed to start testing again to try and test. And it threw them all for a fucking loop. They were like, well, why do you want to test? And I'm like, cause I've been exposed a minimum of three times. And they're like, but you're exempt from testing. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like yeah, but that doesn't mean I can't get it. Yeah. And they're like, well, we need you to leave. <laughs> we don't, they refused me a test. Because I was still six days out from being required by the production to test.
3: Yeah. Incredible. They're talking about it like it's like homework that
0: a kid doesn't
3: want to do. They're like, oh, you don't have to do that. Why do you want to do it? Like,
0: what the fuck? No, it's actually worse than that because that would almost make sense. No, the testing portion of, of this production said to me, like, we don't want to test you because the likelihood of a false positive is too high. Uh, and I'm like that's cool I've been exposed by at least three different people so the likelihood of a correct positive is also pretty fucking high (laughs) yeah
4: and the way that all the tests are designed is to avoid false positives even the like the quick tests that you get are like 99% they skew against false positives so that, that is just insane logic all the way around
0: That's why everyone on the show thought it was very suspicious when two of the main actors both got false positives when we have individually taken dozens, if not hundreds of tests and individually
2: gotten no false positives. And, yeah, they do skew towards the the false negatives. And I think I heard something that, like, if you um, take the swab and put it in the back of your throat and then put it up your nose, then that's a better test and you can catch it, you know, earlier or whatever. But I, I did want to say, I don't know what it is in other states, but in Colorado, they have a law now where um, you're supposed to get up to 80 hours a year of sick leave if you've used up all your other sick time. Well, so, yeah. Like, okay, yeah. great. <laughs> so, so they make you use your PTO first. Wow. And then, how, and then how... you, you get the special like emergency state leave or whatever, so... Yippee. How do
5: you write that bill and not, feel, how do you like uh, as conservative as you could be? How do you write that bill and not be like, I'm being a piece of shit. I'm, yeah. As you write it, like I'm being a piece of shit. How do you not?
2: <laughs> don't understand well, we got to compromise Connor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and speaking of compassionate <laughs>
0: conservatives, <laughs> can G just please come America now. <laughs> you know.
2: Oh yeah, and uh, and and speaking of being a huge piece of shit, there's a bill in uh, the U.S. Congress right now to cap the pay of travel nurses so they don't make too much money. Like what the fuck? Like that's not a free market. Yeah.
5: Did we both just say that's the
0: free market? Because yeah. it's very relevant to the Cars and Comrades listeners. I I forget the acronym. What is it? The BNSF Railway. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, the court struck down their right to strike this week. Yeah. So let us not forget that the government does not give a fuck about workers. They were trying to strike because uh, I don't understand the policy completely, but it was was due to their lack of sick and vacation time. Yeah. And a judge said, actually, you're not allowed to strike. Well, and America hates rail in general, right? Dude, this is... This is not like travel the country and like sow your wild wild no, real traffic. They denied these people's right to strike because they didn't want to fuck up the supply chain further.
5: Exactly. Right. Which is pretty much the greatest power that workers have. And that's always been the case. So like this precedent is just like Taft-Hartley extremely dangerous because now they could just be like uh, that might ruin the supply chain and you're like yeah that's literally the point. That was that's what a strike <laughs> is. Maybe you missed that. That's what it's for. So basically like this
0: was the soft opening for no, a general strike is not allowed. Fuck you.
5: Yeah. So I think a little bit later in this episode, I am going to have some ideas for how unions can kind of go forward and whether that's following the rules or not, whatever. Um, And I I think everyone else should have uh, probably a couple of suggestions too, just to point out that, I I think the point is one, we're we're putting out positive ideas for like what, what the future could look like for labor struggles. But I think it's also important to kind of demonstrate that like there are union leaders today who didn't come up with these ideas who have not tried any of this. Where are they? Like, what the fuck? How long are you going to get your ass beat before you're like, Oh gee, maybe I should throw a punch. I'm just saying like, yeah, come on. Yeah. Mike,
1: I have a question regarding the, you know, just not allowing workers to strike. Maybe you could explain, Brandon, you know, for the listeners, of course, not for me, because I, I definitely understand this, of course, but explain like <laughs> yeah, what it means to it. that they're not allowed to strike. Like, I'm assuming that that just means that they don't have access to strike funds. And therefore, if they do strike anyway, this is all on their own dime and on their, at their own risk individually. That's usually how it goes. Yeah, Most of the time.
5: Yeah. It's Everyone like you, you can't,
0: you don't get protection. Some sort of contempt of court charge. It's, if I had to take a shot in the dark that this is more of a moral victory for capital, because there's nothing to actually prevent anybody from going on strike. Right. There just might be more repercussions
1: than there were before. And I think getting to your point, Connor, about suggestions and ideas for strike tactics in the future, I think that kind of just points to probably an anarchist tactic of like building mutual or dual power and having like black strike funds. Like if, if we can't access the legal strike funds because a strike is legal, maybe we need to have an illegal uh, strike fund. Maybe we need a, a go a black go fund. Go. A go black me, if you will. Oh yeah,
5: exactly. I mean that's related to some of the ideas. There you go, Mike. That's exactly what I'm talking about. See? I gotta go
1: GoBlackMe.com. I think that's it might be already taken, we'll see. But I was gonna say that sounds like something else. <laughs> Don't Google that. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Uh, like that is that is a, that is a funny idea though. You know all the all the dark money we have in politics. You just need you just need dark money and union stuff, but only for good somehow. Yeah. yeah. So just, there was a time there. when
5: there was a time when the mob had a lot of involvement with labor unions, and that could have been good if the mob was different. But obviously, the mob was the mob, and so yeah, we want to make that, a good mob. Even
0: mob <laughs> yes. was the mob. It was still probably better than this. <laughs> Uh. I mean, I'm just
5: saying, I think there are some tactics that I'm like, yo, they got shit done. I mean, like, even the
0: mob did. was at worst killing dozens of people instead of thousands. True. Yeah. Very true. There are some suspicious ways that the mob <laughs> is better than the U.S. government. I mean,
4: at least the mob's like hyper local, you know, like they work within one small area and they need to extract wealth. these small group of people so they can't kill all of them?
1: I mean, Phil, I could make the case that you could exercise extreme personal responsibility with the mob more easily than you can with the government, because if, like, mobsters are giving you a hard time you really just want to be, like, Rambo about it, you could take matters into your own hands with them and possibly live to tell the tale if you take out enough of them. But the government, like, they just have an endless amount. Like, you cannot do that. So,
0: I'm not going to actually, like, praise the mob, because that feels like an entirely too AMCAP thing to do. I mean, here's the other thing: is I can choose
4: not to deal with the mob. Normally, like you know, I've never really had a lot of mob run-ins. I have yeah. to deal
1: with the government. True. It was your car update. I mean, the
2: only like wildcat strike I can think of recently that actually succeeded was the West Virginia teachers' strike, like two years ago. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and the way that they accomplished that was they coordinated in Facebook groups so that they all went on strike at the same time. And basically, you know, even though it was an illegal strike, the state couldn't fire all the teachers or, you know, 60% of the teachers or whatever, however many it went on strike. And, like, you know, they couldn't really penalize them however they would, you know, so it was a, a successful thing. I don't know what the um, – what is a BNSF, uh, what their deal is, but, like, I know in some industries, like, I think you can – Brandon wasn't you that was talking about how like if you had a wildcat strike you could like lose your union membership or something like that or yeah, well, uh, something when like-
0: my when my local voted to strike and we didn't go on strike there was talk about wildcatting because everyone was unhappy with the contract that we got but yeah that that said if you wildcat you run the risk of being ejected from the union completely but again if
2: everyone does a wildcat strike. They can't really do that to you.
0: Yeah. That's why hundred percent you can wildcat. You just got to really have the fucking numbers if you want to do
1: it. Right. Does the area 51 raid still live in anybody else's head? Like it does <laughs> in mine. Like just that <laughs> idea, the fact that like so many people were able to get on board with like collective action or just the idea of it for like a good couple months there, even because it was a meme, like it has to be something as ridiculous as that for it to really take hold in people.
0: Do you remember what the turnout for that looked like?
1: Well, I think they realized a couple months before how willing the government was going to be to use very lethal force on them if if they actually showed up. We'll never do the same time. I won't get shot. And do you feel like that's less true for striking workers? Um, It looks worse. And it also like I think people don't realize how much power there is in literally just sitting the fuck down. Like, I forget, I, where do they have the, the lay-down movement? Is it Japan? That is, that is
6: China. The no, yeah, I movement. mean,
4: well, it's tied in with the anti-work stuff, yeah. too. It's like the, That's the American version of the, uh, the lay-down
0: strikes, or the sit-down strikes. China, they've had the whole touching fish thing for years now.
1: Yep. What's the touching fish thing?
0: Uh, it- does anyone understand it very well? Because I understand it moderately okay, so i I don't know exactly like because I think that there is something lost in translation, but there's a certain old adage about like touching fish, and it roughly translates into like you know killing time, just kind of slacking off and fucking around oh, okay and uh, there's a there's a really good behind the bastards on it if I can find it, yeah, hmm. like for all the ways that I will absolutely back like and support China, they actually do not have a great rapport with workers in china right now Mm -hmm. and so a lot of uh even leftists like this is not like a reactionary thing i have listened to interviews with like chinese nationals who were leftists and trying to push the chinese government in a certain direction i forget the name of that collective it was not the one that everyone knows about it was another one anyway yeah that like uh their their whole like Mantra is touching fish, and it basically means, like, you're fucking around. Like, if you have to work for 12 hours, you fuck around for a while because you have to be there, and you're going to be there, but it doesn't mean you have to make the boss any money. But, I mean, some of it is just is ennui. Like, it's a philosophical issue. Like,
4: we're all getting pushed into office jobs, right? And, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, You know, I graduated college, went did an office job and I hated it and had to find my way back into a different part of the workforce. And I'm much happier just working with my hands. But the push is to work in offices and that is soul sucking for a large majority of people. And even in like a leftist government, you're going to have to find a way to make office jobs suck less so people don't hate that work you know even if it's important work like there's got to be a way to do it where it's not so depleting on the person doing the work
3: so should we just like kind of co-opt and weaponize the the whole touch grass thing Mm -hmm. from from the internet like pretty on it guys seriously though a little bit like I mean, like everybody's getting pushed into these like dead corporate offices that fucking suck the soul out of you. And people already say touch grass all the time when they're being shitty on the Internet. So if we just co-opted that into being like, hey, like you work eight hours a day in this shitty office. Fucking everybody touch grass, like just like touching fish, like go fucking sit in a field
5: for a minute. Get out of the work remotely from a field. That's what I think. Yeah. I bet you so many people would be happier doing that. I,
1: oh, yeah, for sure. I bet you work on getting some bitches. <laughs> yeah, work
0: virtually, not at all.
1: Based. All right. All right. You, you want to get into the uh, actual discussion then?
5: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, definitely would like to get started. So right, me, I'm, I'm going to grab a, a beer. Fight.
1: We're recording. A oh, hold on a second. I'm going to uh, knock out the intro and then we will take a break. Yeah, let me do that real quick. Let me just knock out I'm the just, intro just so I can get it over with. Okay. If I can. What were you going to say, Connor? Sorry.
5: I was going to make a joke how I was going to like, oh, I'm just going to make a bunch of noise while you do your intro. Wow. wow, 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 wow. But then Oh, I'm I mean, not. it probably wouldn't I matter. I might do that I mean. anyway. We'll see.
1: <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn of the Podcast.
5: Wow, 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 to wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm done. I swear I'm done this time.
6: <laughs> yeah, so Phil, how are you doing? How'd you make out with the storm? I did pretty good.
4: Uh, yeah. Yeah, we got like seven-ish inches. Uh, not too bad. Um, That's what she said. Hey-o. <laughs> Got pretty tuned up last night. I uh, <laughs> fire going out back all day because uh, she said she wanted to, uh, you know, chill up back for a little bit. And it was so cold out that like I had that fire like three hours before just so that all the bricks in the chimney would like get warm and actually start radiating heat. Wild. Yeah, my neighbor said something to me yesterday. He's like, yeah, I thought my
0: house was on fire. Kept smelling wood burning all day. To be notorious at my oh. old job for just smelling like a campfire all day, every day. Yeah. And it was because I heated my house with like a wood fire stove for two years. Oh, okay.
4: How about you, Danger? You got hit pretty hard. Uh, no, we didn't get hit that bad. Oh, Really? Oh, no, that was Boston. Boston got
6: fucking... Yeah, Boston Airport got, like, over two feet of snow. Yeah, that's wow. it. Like...
0: In all fairness, fuck Boston.
6: I mean, fuck Boston.
0: Agreed, fuck Boston.
6: All the listeners from Boston, Brad Marchand is a little bitch.
0: Yeah, fuck Marchand. <laughs> Wait, so now it's cars, coffee, and hockey? I don't know who Brad Marchand is, but if you listen to this show and you live in Boston, you're all right with me. You're probably one of the good ones, <laughs> but everyone you know fucking sucks. What so with that?
4: I'm sorry, I raised
0: the city. It's like the most
4: racist city. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say the most racist city in the north. What else are they known for? Tearing down literally every building
0: in downtown and then rebuilding it to look old. Gross. Well, you don't want an actually old building. That's gross and icky.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mike, did you guys get hit
4: with uh, a bunch of snow?
1: Bro, I have like two feet outside. That's wild. Yeah, but that's actually normal for here. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You live next to a huge body of water. Yeah, it's like lake effect is a real, real thing. It's crazy.
0: Not to be ableist here, but every time I go outside, I've got two feet outside.
6: Hey-o. Hey-o.
1: I don't oh, think it's ableist God. to recognize a privilege, actually.
6: Here's something that's going to get cut from
4: the pod uh, before we get started. <laughs> I read something about uh, Willem Dafoe did a movie with Lars Ventrier. Oh, and... a penis double! Yeah, they had to get a penis double because his dick was too big. It was,
0: and I quote, confusingly large. <laughs> Yes, confusingly large. I love that that's making the rounds again because he was on Saturday Night Live, but like that's been a thing that's been floating around for years. I just hope it's true. Me too. It's it's been floating around. It's It's been floating around ever since that movie got made. There's things in the world that are like important. Like that's how I judge um, whether
4: truth matters, right? Like, is it important if it's true? Then truth matters. Is it not important if it's true? Then truth doesn't matter. And like, I choose to believe that Willem Dafoe's dick is so large that it's confusing to see because it's hilarious. And the truth of the matter doesn't make any
6: difference. But the hilarity makes me. I'll send you the scene, Phil. You can judge for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hog. I also love that
2: everyone knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Just for the record, I had not heard this, Maybe <laughs> neither. but um, I did get in an argument with some liberal about this kind of thing. I, I forget what it was. I about made a some joke about penis. No, no, not about penises, but about some other like celebrity gossip. It was just a joke. It was like, who cares? And they're like, the truth matters because, like, democracy dies in darkness. So I'm like, shut oh, up, nerd. You. <laughs> like, come on.
5: <laughs> I mean, truth matters, but liberals do not have truth. Three. Democracy did die in darkness.
0: <laughs> wow, I really killed this whole conversation. Big ups to me. <laughs> Busy eating his burrito. Sorry. I was trying to make oh, a man. Dark Knight Rises joke, but I couldn't get there. The wheels were turning, but I wasn't getting there. Will and the Dark Knight Rises. know <laughs> <laughs> <Yo. laughs> Some of us need to do, like, a Dark Knight Rises film review where <laughs> Bane is just inevitably the good guy.
4: <laughs> man, I would love to... Uh, me and Mike, I feel like, would have a fucking hilarious... Uh, thing doing that because we're both big fans of uh, Kill James Bond. Yeah, that, that rules. I feel like it would be great because like Batman is also that like superhero in that same vein.
0: It would be totally riding their coattails, but like I would love to do that. I like. There's so much dialogue about whether or not Batman is or is not good, is fascist, is anti fascist, blah 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 blah. I just don't care. Fuck Batman. Yeah who cares bro he's a trust baby who beats up mentally ill people like
4: yeah he's like Elon Musk in the
6: workout routine
4: yeah <laughs> but like i grew up loving that guy you know i grew up loving that man and that's what that's the thing it's like the character is unimportant it's like it's a cultural touchstone you know that's I, if you haven't listened to kill james bond that's what they're getting at and they
2: never say if you, if you do that Shut uh you know Kill Batman podcast. Uh, I really hope you do, like, the older stuff, too. Like, the... um Oh, yeah. Uh, you have to. The, the, the TV show. With, like the uh, what's his name? TV Adam show. West. Yeah, yeah. Adam West. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Mike, we'd have to get Ren on it, though. Yeah, he'd be pissed to hear that. He loves Batman.
0: <laughs> he does. <laughs> I have a co-worker that I've been talking about cars with, like, non-stop for, like, three weeks because... He is a former like head mechanic for a dealership and a bunch of other places. And I was like, Yes, my people. And it literally was like two and a half weeks into us becoming friends when he like casually mentioned something about being gay. And I'm like, oh, somebody that could come on our show. Not us just That's a awesome. regular straight white guy. <laughs> That'd be he's nice. A thinking, spicy,
4: he's a spicy, spicy white guy. <laughs>
0: yeah, but then- but then I had to have the internal dialogue of like, do I really want to talk to my coworker about how I have a communist podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hard <Our>, no. <laughs> I'm still of the school of thought that having a podcast is something to be deeply ashamed of. Yeah, for the most <laughs> part. Oh, yeah. I don't talk to people in real life about it. <laughs> There's like three of my friends that
1: know that I have this. My mom on Friday texts me. She goes, do you have a podcast? And. I was like, oh, fuck. And so I said, yeah, it's about politics. Isn't... By the way, who said that? And then, and then I said, um, I did tell her one of my co-hosts was the drummer for the Indigo Girls because she's a huge Indigo Girls fan. But she has like literally has not even read the text since Friday. I'm like, all right, I don't know. I'll call her. That's the closest you're ever going to get to coming out as a straight white guy, by the way.
6: Oh, yeah, I mean. Like, Mom, I have something very important to tell you have a, pod a podcast i'm indoctrinating these kids <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: oh,
6: God damn i thought you were just
0: gay <laughs> <laughs> i was hoping you were gay i didn't think it had gotten this bad yeah that'd be better <laughs> you have a podcast oh my god you have a leftist podcast how am i going to talk to your father about this <laughs> written
6: no, out of the will just don't tell dad just don't tell dad yet
4: he's not ready <laughs> I mean, I don't know all of your family's politics, Mike, but I remember the first time I ever met anybody in your family was you had somebody that like went to jail for I
0: was like I can get down with that. Yeah. Seems pretty rad. All right, it's coming out here, folks. Mike's from a lib family. Uh yeah,
1: actually, yeah. Very much so.
0: No, I'm I'm making a joke because everybody gets really hung up on like what your like family is. Right. Like living in the punk scene, it's super important if your family has money. And I kind of get it. But then at the same time, it's like, well, if your family has money, are you just doomed to be a piece of shit for the rest of your life? Because you can always attribute it to your family has money or has this or has that. Right. No, you, you get to escape that. Mike has overcome his liberal heritage I hope. by starting a <laughs> leftist podcast. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah we'll see we'll see you heard it here Mike says
1: vote Biden
5: <laughs>
1: oh my god only for harm reduction guys come on
5: <laughs> okay alright I, I gotta get into the material this is getting too uh, the rails. if re reelect
1: them. the kids will actually come out of the cages if we reelect them.
0: <laughs> speaking of harm reduction let's talk about Walter Ruther yeah Yeah.
5: (laughs) thanks walter
0: (laughs) what a segue well i mean if you've been keeping up with the show you know that i just hit the nail on the head yeah
4: God,
1: those communists are amazing. Hi everybody, welcome back to Turn Up to the Podcast. Mike, hey, him. And tonight, my guests are Phil, hey, him, and Mark, hey him. And these are just uh, close friends of mine. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good, Mike. Glad to have you guys here. Like I said, close friends of mine grew up in the same town, so if you hear any of like the weird accent things that I try to hide, that's where that's all coming from. And also, Phil's the reason that Turn Leftist and Cars and Comrades got put in
0: touch with each other. So let's give him some credit for that. That is true. I forgot about that. Thank you. Or blame. Yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> I accept right, all the blame. If you're smaller podcast, blame if you're the bigger one that's had to deal with us for 12 episodes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've been loving it. But um, yeah, obviously, I have all the guys from the Cars and Comrades podcast as well. So we have Brandon, he, him. Brian, he, him. Connor, he, him. And Zach, he, him. How are y'all doing? Doing well. Pretty good. Good. Well, I'm glad to have you guys back, and I'm glad to be picking up on the Walter Ruther series for what we are tentatively calling the last episode of this series. We'll see if we actually get through all the material and we can actually wrap it up in this one, but I don't know. We'll try to. Yeah, we're going to try. (laughs) Thanks for hedging your bets, though. I mean, I'm going to say it in such a way that I can cut it out if we don't wrap it up this one, but we'll see. Unless he comes back from the dead. uh, Spoiler, (laughs) he dies at the end.
0: As I've said before, if he comes back from the dead, at least four more episodes.
3: <laughs> I mean, that would be a pretty major thing, yeah. Yeah. Our next episode is just going to be us contacting him on a Ouija board. <laughs>
5: Doing a <laughs> seance? <Yeah. laughs>
0: I am willing to do so many mushrooms that I conjure up the, like, soul of Walter <laughs> Uh,
5: Well... Technically, I don't think you guys are uh, not fully caught up. In fact, I think um, our guests we here don't even awesome know what episode number stuff. this is. I don't know what
0: episode number this is, and I'm one of the hosts. Going in cold. This is number seven. Seven? Yeah. Jesus. Is- oh, my God. I I said that as a joke, but I honestly thought it was five.
3: I'm <laughs> <laughs> not going to lie. I thought we were on nine, so, you know. Nine-eleven, baby. <laughs> Wait, so our...
4: Are me and Mark like where you guys are just jumping the shark and we're just the new characters at the end of Happy Days? Like, yeah. we're
3: yeah, yeah, pretty much just breathe some life into this dying beast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, speaking of dying beasts, Connor, for real, buddy. Sorry, okay, yeah, all right, I got, got it.
5: Voice. Sorry, sorry. So, I did want to, um, before we get into Walter Ruther's death, which is definitely the big thing we're going to be talking about here because. All of everything Walter Ruther did, I would argue, ultimately did lead to his, we'll call suspicious death. Untimely. Yeah, untimely, for sure. So before we get to that, uh, there there was just a couple little loose ends that I wanted to tie up. And so I I wanted to kind of jump right into those. After six episodes, I feel like there really shouldn't be any loose ends, but there's definitely going to be. Story's just that detailed. One of those loose ends is the UAW disaffiliation from the AFL-CIO, and ever since Walter agreed to merge the CIO with the American Federation of Labor, Walter took a back seat in the organization by becoming one of the many vice presidents. Walter still had power in the form of being very well known to the public and many political connections that we've discussed in detail, although now we, we kind of understand that those relationships were not nearly as valuable as Walter had actually thought they were. But George Meany was steering the ship ultimately, um, and that was kind of disastrous in a lot of ways. Walter did not get along with George Meany at all, and I would say that is probably to his credit. George Meany is a bastard and an enemy of the working class, remember? Mm -hmm. And remember, I did mention the cemetery he is buried at, so you know what to do. (laughs) So if you are nearby and can't
0: find a restroom.
5: Yep. And Maryland is a very small state. His last contribution to the world was a gender neutral bathroom. And for dogs, too. You know, dogs love it. True. Yeah. BC's neutral restroom. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, the uh, UAW disaffiliated from the AFL CIO on July 1st, 1968, after Reuther and President George Meany could not come to agreement on a whole shitload of policy issues and reforms to the AFL CIO governance. So on July twenty fourth, uh, nineteen sixty eight, you know, obviously a couple of weeks after the UAW disaffiliation, uh, Teamsters General President Frank Fitzsimmons and Reuther formed the Alliance for Labor Action as a new national trade union centered to organize unorganized workers and pursue leftist political and social projects. So obviously, is kind of what Walter was all about, you know, broadening the impact of the labor movement. This new, more leftist type of union federation was almost certainly viewed as a threat to the ruling class and by Walter's many enemies. Meany denounced the ALA as a dual union, although Ruther argued it was not. Not sure why he would have suggested that it was. Kind of just seemed like a different uh, union alliance. So, again, he was a bastard. Yeah, Phil?
4: When you say dual union, like, I I don't know what you mean. So you're saying with like a union within a
5: union? So. I'm not a hundred percent clear, but dual union is like if you have membership in two unions. So, oh, okay, like the, dual, like yeah, dual so
0: citizenship the, or something. Well, I was so, dual membership. If I joined a loc- a different local in the same union. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, like it literally just means that you're a member of of multiple unions, or just two or whatever. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. actually,
5: um, the IWW is kind of known for a dual union strategy. That's their. They yeah. they want people to be members of the IWW plus whatever their local is. And so apparently not everybody likes that. They must like losing. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Meany denounced the ALA as a dual union, uh, although Ruther argued it was not. The Alliance's initial program was pretty ambitious. Unfortunately, after Ruther's death in a plane crash in 1970, the group halted operations in July 1971 after the auto workers, now almost bankrupt from a lengthy strike at General Motors, was unable to continue to fund its operations. So I wanted to mention this. Walter eventually did get sick of the AFL-CIO, took the UAW out, which at the time the UAW was the largest single union in the AFL-CIO. So that was a big deal. And then he allied with the Teamsters, which was at the time... Obviously had some issues, but was rather progressive in their program. So
0: still has some issues, but is potentially heading in that direction again.
5: It does seem that way. So um the UAW is not. <laughs> <laughs> um by the way, the uh UAW is currently affiliated with the AFL CIO again. I did look for it a little bit. I don't know when they re-affiliated, but I would imagine it was probably sometime. In the 70s or 80s but it could have been in the 2000s for all i know i, I really don't know but they are currently members of the afl cio anyway the other little thing i wanted to mention here is walter's involvement with the first earth day the uaw was the most instrumental outside financial and operational supporter of the first earth day in 1970 according to dennis hayes That was Earth Day's first national coordinator uh, who said without the UAW, the first Earth Day would have likely flopped. Now, this might not sound very important today. It really doesn't. I I know. Bear with (laughs) me. (laughs) So but it did actually matter at the time. Uh, Today, Earth Day is just another national insert whatever fucking day here, which we have a million of those. They don't fucking mean anything.
0: It's important to recognize what planet you live on. (laughs)
5: <laughs> so when it first started, though, uh it was actually much more important than it is today. uh We don't. It we didn't be know... less important
1: than it is today. <laughs> exactly. Come on, bring right the um, with Flag Day.
5: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Ugh. Well, anyway. So at the time, we didn't know as much about climate change, but pollution was fucking crazy. Like seriously, it was unimaginably bad for us younger folks today to realize just how polluted the air and the whole environment was at the time. It seems bad today, but like we, we rivers were with. lighting on fire. Yeah, it was real fucking bad. So it was a top issue at the time for Walter who was always a, a strong environmentalist and he always advocated for environmental issues. After the first earth day, later that year, the EPA was proposed by in July and then created by Richard fucking Nixon in December. So, like, Earth Day happens, the EPA is created, like, months later, so...
0: I honestly wish modern Democrats could even be as far left as 1970 (laughs) Republicans.
5: (laughs) I know. It's so bad. It really is that bad. (laughs) No, it's actually worse. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, Richard Nixon then created the EPA because of public support for things like environmental issues. So it led to the first emissions controls on cars and trucks, which we can thank today for the much cleaner air that we enjoy. So Walter Ruther's influence played a major role in how these environmental policies actually played out.
4: As a cars podcast, like it's refreshing to hear car people actually thank like emissions controls. Like they did a lot of good just on the car end of this like wait
6: you mean I shouldn't you're... be breathing in lead <laughs> exactly
0: Before. it really depends on what your end goal is if you want to have less personal like control over your own actions yes lead is good <laughs> yeah i want that part of my brain
6: not to form and i'm crazy violent
0: if you want to lash out at your family and friends for seemingly no reason lead is the way to go exactly Very effective. If you want to have, like,
4: more learning disabilities, yeah, lead. Lead every day.
1: But, I mean, fear not, because I just saw a graph today of all the lead pipes that are still in use around the country. And if you think it's just in Flint, Michigan, ooh, do I have a surprise for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I have some
0: engineering information for you. Lead pipes aren't actually that dangerous when they're being used. It's when they lay dormant for a while and then go into use that they become incredibly dangerous. Oh, yeah. When they're when they're in use, something about like actually flowing water either leaches such a low amount of lead into the drinking water. Uh, yeah, Phil, go ahead. Mike, you're gonna have to cut a whole bunch of shit because I don't. Phil,
4: yeah. just say it's your job, and then just tell us that it's all right. Like, yeah. So they use tons of things to make sure that water deposits on pipes instead of leaches from pipes, but like. Yeah, the water pipes lead stuff isn't too terrible as long as they're listening to chemistry,
6: like listening to chemists. It's you know, Flint happened because they stopped listening to chemists and, and they clipped the water source to something more acidic and then exactly it deposits off the pipes and then it started leaching the lead. Exactly, they didn't change their phosphate dosing
4: and then they changed their water chemistry and then it just started leaching lead out. Methyl ethyl lead. In gas is different because everyone is getting dosed by tailpipes. And it, there's probably something to do with like breathing it in or drinking it. But like, yeah, working in uh, an environmental like uh, industry, yeah, it's uh, lead. Lead is still all around, but there's a lot of people looking at it
0: now. You heard Phil, facts don't care about your feelings.
1: <laughs> yep. You. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, ruining my joke with your facts. I was just going to
2: say for the listener, uh, we've done a couple episodes on this. uh, The ones that Connor researched about the EPA and the, um, what was it called? The The RPM Act. The RPM Act, yes, that's right. And then the one that I researched about leaded gasoline and just lead in general, which was kind of scary, I got to say. There's a shit ton of lead out in the environment now, and it's not good for you. Yeah. So.
1: Well,
0: lead is absolutely bad, but there are times when it's not as bad as other times.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, sorry for the, the the diatribe,
4: but as a Cars podcast, it's really refreshing to hear somebody be like, yeah, emissions
0: control. They don't suck that bad. Ugh. Connor has gone <laughs> on record saying that catalytic
5: converters are good. Yeah, yeah. I'll sign on to that. I mean, yeah. honestly, I swear, it's like, People look around, oh, they, they're killing. And I'm like, bro, there's fucking 700 horsepower production cars. Like, it ain't shit anymore. You can think emissions controls.
3: If your car isn't making enough power because of your catalytic converter, then your car isn't making enough power. <laughs> yep. Like, period. You know? The yeah. That is not the fucking difference. Like, look at other fucking sources of
0: power leaching because yeah. the cat ain't it, bud. Maybe the cat's not the problem. Maybe you drive a Miata. Ooh, I would bring Miata through this.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> all right. Uh. Now, returning back to the story, let's get into the plane crash. A so, ordinary crash. Yeah, just, just a crash. regular old plane crash happens all plane. the time. No big deal. Plain old crash. So, on, on May 9th, 1970, Walter Ruther, his wife May, architect Oscar Stonerov, Reuther's bodyguard William Wolfman, the pilot and co-pilot were all killed when their chartered Learjet 23 crashed in flames at 9.33 p.m. Eastern Time. The plane, arriving from Detroit in rain and fog, was on final approach to Pelston Regional Airport in Pelston, Michigan, near the UAW's Recreational and Educational Facility at Black Lake, Michigan. The National Transportation Safety Board discovered that the plane's altimeter, which is like the altitude measuring gauge, was missing parts, some incorrect parts were installed, and one of its parts had been installed upside down,
1: leading some to speculate that Ruther may have been murdered. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I don't know if anybody happens to know about the routine checks that go into every plane, but like, There is a checklist you have to go through because flight is fucking serious. Like, it's not like your car breaks down, you pull over. So I think that that is one of them. Isn't it? like check your altimeter? Yes. So there's a couple
5: little things. We'll take a quick break right here just to point out that one, it sounds kind of bad where you're like, hey, who's this Walter asshole that he's taking private jets? Fuck this guy. I got you. But he's flying between Detroit, UAW headquarters here and there. He's going to Washington, D.C. This guy's all over the fucking country. So he does fly in a chartered jet fairly frequently. A lot of labor bosses have to do this. Maybe it's not ideal. Maybe he could have driven. It's Michigan. But like, I don't know. He's a busy fucking guy. This is far from the worst thing. It doesn't
0: matter how much he polluted because he
6: started Earth Day.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, it's not personal decisions that cause all this whatever. But anyway, so he's traveling around. But one of the things that's important to note about this kind of travel is that planes get swapped around a lot and these pilots keep flying different planes. So they might have four flights in a day, but they might fly four different fucking planes. So the pilots demand a very high level of checking that everything's right. So before and after every flight, the planes are checked thoroughly. You know, All the controls are checked, the gauges, things like the altimeter are checked. Because obviously the pilots are like, I don't know who fucking flew this plane last. I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with it.
0: I've worked with former airplane mechanics. It's required that your tool set is itemized. And if you're missing a socket, the plane can't take off until you have found it.
5: Damn.
6: Wow. Yeah. And those motherfuckers just walk off all the time. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) If you
0: are an airplane mechanic who works on commercial airplanes, you do not fuck around losing your 10 millimeter. Yeah, there go my dreams of being an airplane mechanic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zach's cool has everything except a 10 millimeter in it.
1: Yeah. Like, this Altima thing should have been caught, is the point, yes,
0: right? It, like, but it's all good because his Subaru something. has like 14 10 millimeters throughout the
3: my whole fucking car. <laughs> if I ever get rid of it, someone's going to get a
2: plethora of 10 millimeters. They're just going to have to. <laughs> Search every nook and cranny for them. Yeah, if you, if you ever scrap that thing out, you know, when they take it to the, the junkyard, just have them, like, pick it up upside down and shake it a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> well, we found $40 worth of sockets in this thing. <laughs> my uh, One of my coworkers used to be an airplane mechanic, and he said that one time they had to tear the entire dashboard out of, like, a jet because someone left a screwdriver in there. And it was just oh. like rattling around behind the the console <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that
3: makes me really happy that I work on cars because no lie, I have dropped a ten millimeter in my engine bay and did not hear it hit the ground, and then went whoa, well, the motor's not open, so it's not inside anything. I'll probably oh, be yeah. fine. And it was driving down the road, and okay. time where the fan
4: is,
0: call it a day. <laughs> oh yeah, I waited to come out on the road. I was like, yep, it was in there. It's fine though, <laughs> but. To get us back on topic slightly, the point that we are making, and I think somewhat effectively, is that if you're an airplane mechanic, nothing gets to slip by you. Parts don't get to be installed upside down or incorrectly, and that just floats. Like, no, everything is accounted for. Yeah, this altimeter thing is not sus, it's big sus. Yeah. And there's also multiple people checking.
5: Yeah, well, and so I'm sure this is also brought up later in what I'm going to be reading further. But there was someone else on this plane not that long beforehand who didn't mention any issues with the altimeter who definitely would have known if there was something wrong with the altimeter. Mm -hmm. So there was something fishy going on here. Now, in all the research I've done, what I have not come across is any name for who inspected the fucking plane. Presumably someone did it. I would argue that that person should probably be questioned. Because I don't know their name, but they never signed off on it. There is a checklist somewhere
4: that yeah. just disappeared. Just fucking beard. Like Yeah. That doesn't so, happen.
5: So Michael Parenti, I know for a fact, did request a bunch of documents uh, relating to the death of Walter Ruther. Uh, he didn't come across anything as far as I'm aware. He doesn't say anything in his article. So, again, I would be questioning, well, gee, who looked at the fucking plane? Maybe we should ask them some questions. Um you course, here first, folks.
0: Michael Parenti is cringe.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, yeah, actually it's
0: funny. Um uh, no, he's absolutely not.
4: That that's a yeah. joke. I am
5: making a joke. Side note, very excited to eventually have a proper dope ass sound system in my car, specifically to listen to Michael Parenti. <laughs> <laughs> having especially him having mic trouble. Never fails. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so the altimeter was all all fucky. Something was there. Ruther had also been subjected earlier to two attempted assassinations and a similar near crash in a small plane in 1969. So the year before. Also weird. Now, uh, journalist Michael Parenti wrote, Ruther's demise appears as part of a truncation of liberal and radical leadership that included the deaths of four national figures. President John Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Senator Robert Kennedy. Now, on that note, I would like to read from the Michael Parenti article directly about this incident to finish up the story here. By the way, I should probably remind people of the name of this article, The Wonderful Life and Strange Death of Walter Ruther by Michael Parenti and Peggy Noten, his uh, research assistant at the time. This is in... A publication called Covert Action Quarterly, which I think is a very funny name. If you look up this article, it's probably not going to be the first Google result, but like it is like a downloadable PDF. So like you can find it. It's it's there. But that's the article we're reading from. I do encourage people to check out this article. It's really well done. And of course. If you listen to enough Michael Prenti, you could definitely hear his voice when you read this. (laughs) So I'm skipping down here to the section specifically about the plane crash. Uh, There's plenty more to this article, but uh, we're going to we're going to go through it this way. So the fatal crash, disturbing evidence. Now, the struggles of Walter Ruther's life provide ample cause to give more than cursory attention to the questionable circumstances of his death. First, as president of the largest union in the country, Ruther had the resources for advancing his causes on the national scene, as did few others. He was an extraordinarily effective proponent of socioeconomic equality and an outspoken critic of the military industrial complex, the arms race, the CIA, the entire national security state, and the Vietnam War. For these stands, he earned the enmity of people in high places. Second, in the years before the fatal crash, there had been assassination attempts against Walter and Victor. Victor believes the attempt against him was intended as a message to Walter. In each of these instances, state and federal law enforcement agencies were, at best, lackadaisical in their investigative efforts, suggesting the possibility of official collusion or at least tolerance for the criminal deeds. Mm -hmm. Third, like the suspicious near crash a year and a half earlier, the fatal crash also involved a faulty altimeter in a small plane. It is a remarkable coincidence that Reuther would have been in two planes with the exact same malfunction in that brief time. Fourth, and most significantly, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation of the fatal May 1970 crash turned up disturbing evidence. When an in- Oh, what in the hell just happened? Sorry, this skipped ahead somehow. Wow, this super lost my place. <laughs> Sorry, please cut this out. I look stupid.
3: Leave this in until we look stupid.
5: (laughs) Okay, that's fair.
4: While you're looking that up, it's, like, important to remind people that, you know, a decade before this or two decades before this, Ford's lackeys were beating Walter Ruther up, like, senseless and, you know, beating other people for this. To go to the point where, you know, an assassination, you know, can we prove it? No, absolutely not. But, you know, does it look super sus? Absolutely. Nah, they would never. Yeah, exactly. But, like, is it out of the realm? No, because they literally would have beat him to death if they had another 20 minutes with him, you know, uh, 10 10 years before, whenever the Battle of the Overpass was.
5: Yeah, they also had those, Harry Bennett hired those two guys to break into his house and try and kidnap yes. him, and then there was the shootings of Victor and Walter, so... And, and this is
4: all proven, you know, factual stuff that there's no there's no debate
0: about. So, yeah, they they were out for this guy. Yeah, he just wasn't as lucky as Castro. Oh, it's yeah. weird, but worth mentioning that, like, in this era, he didn't have any friends in the left. Like, yeah. literally, this dude at this point had no allies. Well, you know, centrist, he had some,
5: but... but...
0: Yeah, what? what the fuck are they gonna do then? Ah, <laughs> uh, support fascism inadvertently.
2: <laughs> yeah, probably.
5: <laughs> yeah, so anyway, when they were investigating the crash and they disassembled the captain's altimeter, they found no fewer than seven abnormalities. Most significantly, investigators found a brass screw lying loose in the altimeter case. Although the report notes that with the loosened screw, the altimeter would have read high by two hundred and twenty-five to two hundred and fifty feet. The investigators did not say who or what had loosened it. They did, however, manage to eliminate the crash itself as the cause. So, yeah, they did a whole bunch of stuff. Point being, there was little parts that were fucky, right? How, so, how many problems did you say, say that they encountered? Seven, Devin, but like they're all with the altimeter. How many would normally
0: pass through an, an aerospace fucking uh, inspection? Zero
3: to one.
5: Yeah, basically, if it's fucked up, if it's not reading right, they would know. You know what I'm saying? Like, they would know that, like, hey, something's not quite right. So, yeah. So this is a very sophisticated way of making it read a certain way. Like, the plane operates as normal, but it's going to read high. And that's usually not a big deal, except for shitty weather, in which case you can't see the runway very well. Now, further examination revealed six other unusual defects in the altimeter, which include an incorrect pivot was installed in one end of the rocking shaft, an endstone was missing from the opposite end of the rocking shaft, a ring jewel within the mechanism was installed off-center, a second rocking shaft a rear support pivot was incorrect, the wrong kind of link pin, which holds a spring clip in place uh, at the pneumatic capsule, was installed, and an endstone, which supports a shaft within the mechanism, was installed upside down. All fucking gibberish to me, but basically a bunch of small shit was like, fucked up it's how would you get the wrong fucking link pin in there by accident and nobody noticed
0: i I feel like the important thing that we do here is acknowledge that there's a lot of requirements amongst aerospace engineers and technicians that say that you have to inspect these things ad nauseum you do not get to skip over something I literally earlier today was watching uh, a video about how an automotive conductor had done exactly what he was trained to do and still failed because he didn't go through things the way that you're supposed to go through. He went through things the way that the company told him to. And even that was one to two failures for a locomotive. The idea that an airplane was able to go through seven failures
5: Uh again. I would just stress it is essentially one failure caused by seven abnormalities within this unit. So like they don't check every single little pin in this gauge, but like the gauge was fucking wrong. They should have absolutely caught that. I guess what I'm saying is that I, t- I tend to err on the side
0: of conservative in terms of conspiracy theory. Like same. I don't like being the Bush did 911 guy, because I genuinely don't
5: believe a lot of those things. But I myself am I am a skeptic myself. I think you're coming at this the right way.
0: Yeah, like I'm willing to accept evidence as it is presented to me, but I'm still skeptical anytime somebody says, Well, I believe in this conspiracy theory because of these two dozen things. That being said, this is fairly straightforward in a lot of respects. And having known airplane mechanics, seven failures of a single system, it's really fucking suspicious.
2: Yeah. I mean, either, either this was put together by the worst altimeter technician in the world, or it was deliberately sabotaged. And I know which I'm leaning towards. But yeah. And the, yeah. And the thing that, like, I want to say,
0: and it, it doesn't represent my actual attitude, but like, it is entirely possible that there were seven flights before this where seven different technicians took seven different shortcuts. Sure. Is it likely? No, it's it's not. It's possible that seven different things were overlooked.
5: But then you would have noticed it like in the previous flights at some point, someone would have said, Hey, the altimeter's reading off by a couple hundred feet. And I think that's kind of the damning piece of this.
3: Sorry, I don't know exactly how an altimeter works, but yeah, if it's 200 to 250 feet off, I think is what you said. Yep. There's this push at a time where you're moving on the ground, which it should be zeroed out or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I honestly don't know how an altimeter works, what its reading would be, but I think that would be very, very noticeable to a pilot who knows where they are as far as elevation.
5: Yeah. To be fair, the pilots themselves clearly didn't notice because they died too. So they definitely nope. didn't notice. So <laughs> however however it reads, it must have been reading zero on the ground. But in theory, yeah. I would think there is some way that the inspection catches this. Yeah, Brian.
2: I was gonna say real quick, my I don't know a, a whole lot about altimeters, but I think in this time period that they would normally work off of air pressure. And there are situations where if like the barometric pressure changes, like if a storm comes in that could throw off your reading. But it sounds like it's not that it it was deliberately fucked with. But I would think that there would be some kind of pre-flight checks to, like, I don't know, hook up a bike pump to it and put some pressure in there. And
5: That's the thing. So the inspection should have caught it, but I would imagine it was probably fucked with in just the right way that the pilot wouldn't notice immediately. exactly. So, like, that's what I'm thinking. So the pre-flight check probably should have caught it. Pilot, on the other hand, a little bit different. Yeah. So continuing on... The odds that this many abnormalities could accidentally or coincidentally appear in a single altimeter are extremely low. With notable understatement, the investigators concluded that such conditions undoubtedly caused excessive friction in the altimeter mechanism. The board believes that while the evidence is not conclusive, the captain's altimeter was probably reading inaccurately. There were other problems as well. The pilots chose the only lighted approach, runway 5 but it lacked both runway and identifier lights in a visual approach path indicator. VAPIs give pilots their proper flight angle and help determine altitude. The main approach, runway 23, had a VAPI, but one of the runway lights was out. That the pilots were not notified of this fault, as is customary, suggests that the light broke near to the landing time. In its opening synopsis, the NTSB report emphasized the lack of visual cues as a cause of the accident. But the synopsis is misleading. The body of the report noted that in the absence of sufficient visual cues, use of the altimeter is a necessity. And if the pilot was using the altimeter to determine the altitude during the approach, then lack of visual cues for altitude determination must be considered to have had little effect. However, an altimeter which read too high could have caused the pilot to mistakenly think that he had sufficient altitude for a safe landing. In view of the condition of the captain's altimeter, such a situation is highly possible. Aside from the altimeter, the report found no other defects in the aircraft. The Learjet was properly certified and airworthy, and there were no malfunction of the aircraft prior to the accident, nor was there evidence of crew incapacity or error. Medical records and post-mortem examinations of the pilot and first officer found no evidence of disease or physical disability, and both crew members had been free from flight duties for approximately 24 hours prior to the flight. Captain George Evans had more than 2,000 hours of flight time on Learjets and more than 140 hours in the previous three months, and both pilots had flown into Pelston Airport many times under far worse conditions. An Associated Press story carried in the New York Times under the headline, quote, no Sabotage Found in Reuther Crash, stated that the NTSB said today that it found no indication of sabotage to explain the Jet Air Taxi crash. The Times story is seriously misleading. In fact, the NTSB report utters not a word about sabotage one way or the other. It notes how numerous unusual defects in the altimeter may have caused a malfunction, but it says nothing about what caused the defects themselves, except to rule out crash heat as a factor in disassembling the locking screw. The report never asks whether the altimeter was tampered with, yet it proffers a good deal of evidence to suggest that it was. In effect, the investigators ignored their own findings. So that's a good place, you know, just to take a quick stock here. Obviously, the New Times runs a fucking piece saying nothing to see here. Yep, there was no sabotage. And it's like, well, that's not what the report says at all. There's a whole bunch of evidence that there was sabotage. They just nope, didn't make sure the determination. Here. We read it. Well, the New York Times is the paper of record, so I suppose that's fair. No evidence for sabotage. You heard it here first, folks. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of speed reading here a little bit. I'm trying to get through this, but it's important to note that, like, the pilots were in good shape. They were experienced. There weren't other factors. And the fact that there were lights out on the runway is also suspicious. Like, why weren't the pilots told? Unless it happened right before this plane came in with Mm -hmm. a bad altimeter, during bad weather. In a very similar case to what had happened just a year and a half earlier. Things are adding up here. Things that should not have happened. And I believe coincidence is often a good, solid explanation for a lot of things. It does seem pretty unlikely here. You're like, hey. (laughs) Yeah, usually like air traffic controllers know, oh, there's a light out here. We should tell the pilots like they're pretty strict safety standards on flight so
3: i think it's safe to say that we're we're edging into the territory of statistical near impossibility yeah very much so statistical improbability but i mean the fact that the same thing happened on a flight that he was on a year and a half earlier it's just too much i mean yeah yeah the the odds are just
5: yeah And remember, Victor had been making some trouble with the CIA, if you remember correctly, so... Yeah. So he won the CIA's
3: number one journalist award. (laughs) Yes, Brandon.
4: I
0: I currently, uh, at at the time of recording, I live in Pittsburgh, and two or three days ago, the bridge collapsed shortly before President Biden came to town. Mm -hmm. And... Everyone that I know immediately was like, "This seems suspicious," and I said, "No, it's not suspicious." Like when you let your infrastructure fail enough, like coincidences like this are going to happen, where the president comes to town on the day that something fails, and everybody says, "No, it's suspicious." And I, I'm coming at this from the perspective of the guy who always says, "Like no coincidences come in the places that you don't expect them," and I still feel like. This is a little bit of a lot of a coincidence,
5: yeah, yeah, and you know, so it it is important to make note of all this. Where you're just like, all right, especially after we've studied the Walter Ruther story in fucking depth, it is not unreasonable to think that somebody wanted this guy dead. I mean, that's literally what the, the last six episodes have been about. How many people wanted this guy dead?
1: Yeah, people have literally
0: shot him. So sabotaging an airplane
5: does not seem far-fetched yeah so earlier on in the day of the fatal crash the same ill-fated learjet carrying popular singer glenn campbell had flown into detroit with no report of a faulty altimeter again that's pretty fucking damning victor ruther noted that there was sufficient between flights for tampering with the altimeter he also pointed out that because they have so many clients and different pilots rental planes are inspected with unusual care and frequency. The pilots demanded as much. It is unlikely that an altimeter with seven defects would have gone undetected if properly inspected before flight. Victor added, I was never convinced that there had been a thorough investigation by federal authorities. There had been too many direct attempts on Walter's life, and there was too much evidence of tampering with the rental plane. In a follow-up interview, Victor Ruther further noted, Animosity from government had been present for some time before the fatal crash. It was not only Walter's stand on Vietnam and Cambodia that angered Nixon, but also I had exposed some CIA elements inside labor, and this was also associated with Walter. Although Walter knew I was right, he felt that I had put him in an impossible position. He said, You're taking on an agency that can forge any document to prove we are liars. But I think he was glad to see the information come out. So we did talk about that quote before. Yeah, plenty of fucking motive here. (laughs) Now, checking into the vendetta is uh, no easy task. The FBI still refuses to turn over nearly 200 pages of documents, including the copious correspondence between field offices and Hoover regarding Ruther's death. And many of the documents it has released are totally inked out. It is hard to fathom what national security concern is involved, or why the FBI and CIA must still keep so many secrets about Walter Ruther. So, he mentions the John Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Senator Robert Kennedy, and dozens of leaders of the Black Panther Party and various community organizations. Whether Ruther's death was part of a broader agenda to decapitate and demoralize the mass movements of that day, or whether such an agenda existed at all, are questions that go beyond the scope of our inquiry. But Victor's belief, shared by Walter's daughter, Elizabeth Ruther, Dick Meyer, and other members of the family, that the crash was no accident, does not seem implausible. Despite the limited investigation, there is enough evidence to suggest that foul play was involved. The death of this dedicated and effective progressive labor leader raises disquieting questions about the criminal nature of state power in what purports to be a democracy. And that is the end of the article there. So I wanted to go through just because I think... Parenti puts it into words better than I was ever going to. Yeah, there was a motive for the state to kill him, and there was plenty of means. This has state involvement written all over it. I've noted previously that there were, obviously, plenty of capitalists that wanted Walter dead. There was also real tensions with organized crime. So the mob, in many instances, did want Walter dead, or they wanted control of unions and stuff. Walter stood in their way in some cases and plenty wanted him dead. I'm sure. So if this was foul play, no one can say for sure who did it, but generally speaking, when the mob wants you dead, they shoot you or drown you or whatever. They're pretty traditional fucking murders. Mm -hmm. And when capitalists want you dead, they get the job done. Okay. When the state wants you dead, the state wants to make it look like a fucking accident. And I'm sorry. You,
0: you you have said that when the state wants you dead, and when capitalists want you dead, and I <laughs> don't understand the distinction. <laughs>
5: um, so I here's the distinction I will make in this story: when Harry Bennett wanted Walter dead, he sent two jackasses into a fucking party to go kidnap him in front of hundreds of people, versus the plane altimeter, which went unnoticed at inspection, and then later also the lights happened to be out at the runway there seems like there is a very different level of like what's involved in these kinds of murders. If they are murders, you know what I'm saying? So like when the CIA gets involved or the FBI or I don't know, some agency I haven't heard of, they are pretty good about making things look like accidents. And there are a lot of very big, important figures to the left who die in accidents, many of which are likely coincidences, but. It happens to a lot of leftists. It really does. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. We're very
0: depressed people. We often shoot ourselves two, three, maybe even four times in the back of the head. Who says we don't have work ethic?
5: Um, I I saw where that joke was going.
0: (laughs) Well, sometimes we're so depressed we can't just stop shooting. Is all (laughs) I'm getting at. It's not the FBI coming into my
5: home. Or the police who got rid of your dog who is protecting you from potential gunmen, you know, (laughs) don't make me go on a rant about the police. I hate them enough. Okay. A cap. We'll leave it at that. So that is the discussion of Walter Ruther's death suggests foul play. And I'd like to point out that all the fucking anti-communism and all the reform and all the playing by the rules and look at where it got Walter. And look at where it got us. Just saying. Mike, you wanted to say something.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the last thing I would like to say about his death is that how many layers of institutions have to be involved in ruling that an accident? Because I don't think that it's the NTSB's purview to rule it, whether it's an accident or, you know, homicide or anything. But obviously there's law enforcement. There's like, there's a lot of levels of people involved that should rule that. And look at this obvious evidence that we're all looking at just from a fucking article with Michael Bryant. I would imagine they were too busy high-fiving.
0: <laughs>
1: right.
5: Like... <laughs> so, yes, this is a good point to also, like, obviously be grateful for Michael Parenti's looking into this topic. Michael Parenti's words on Walter Ruther, probably the reason I got into this study at all in the first place. And I think he really added a lot to the story. So I am happy to be carrying on that story to probably a younger audience than it's seen in the past but i think it is to me terrifying how little most people know about this story and it wasn't like that long ago like walter ruther was a household name and now no one knows who the fuck he was yeah i think that's for me that was a big takeaway
0: i think there's two big takeaways from that there's the takeaway that like labor leaders just even if you are a pro walter ruther like if everything that he has said and done completely vibes with your outlook on life, what's the likelihood that you remember him? Because there are a lot of labor leaders that are not as romanticized as your house speaker, your president, vice president, so on and so forth. They are just not the characters in the story that get romanticized. And so I think the first takeaway is learn who your fucking union leaders are and like I'm, I'm as guilty as the next guy. Like,
5: oh, me too. I know who. Yeah, we'll be addressing that in a little bit. But yeah, that's to me. I I thought that that was disturbing. Where I'm like, as much labor history as I know, everything I know is big picture stuff. I don't know the characters. I don't know who the people were, or what they did. And learning through this, I was like, damn, there is a lot here that has been forgotten among leftists too. Which, in our defense, we have a lot of fucking history to learn. We have to learn other fucking countries. We got to learn way more history than anybody else has to learn. We got to read all these fucking books. It is easy to unlearn the stuff you were point. taught. Yeah, there is a lot of work involved in being on the left. But I think we all, and I've heard, I listen to podcasts a lot. You know, I don't always have the time to, like, read the theory and stuff. So I'm happy to listen to people give me the takeaways, Right. And I hear a lot of people talk about how we need to build union power and like, OK, unions are important. Unions are important. What are we going to do? The problem is you're like, all right, well, I'm not in a union, though. Like, what are we going to do? And I think one of the first things you can do is like learning history like this is like, OK, what can we take from this and then go forward? So does anybody else have any like brief thoughts before I go into some of the questions I want to discuss? If you're going into questions, bud, let's hear them. Okay. So these are mostly the questions I've reiterated kind of a few times throughout the series, but I think they're worth discussing a little bit, at least briefly here. So how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and building movements outside the centers of power? And I kind of add on to this, is having influence with presidents and politicians worth anything? No, it's not. Fuck them. I agree. Does anyone else have, uh, have some thoughts here on, you know, how do we, cause I do feel like there is this to, to a certain degree, we probably need some legislation. Like I think we need some legislative solutions to start attacking Taft Hartley, you know, take something like the pro act, right? I think it would be objectively good if we had proper union legislation I
0: always worry that we get wrapped up in the history of things like, man, I, I follow Mike online enough to know that like, you know, we, we get a little bit wrapped up in the history of the Soviet union and we ignore the bad things that were legitimately done. True. If there were bad things. Sure. Yeah. When I find them, I'll let <laughs> you know. I'm not trying to start a fight here. I mean, if you want fight? sure. Let's go. But more to the point, I worry about like, getting lost in like in the history and forgetting where we're at right now in the present and the present says you know i had a point that i was going to make but i'm very drunk and the hit like (laughs) honestly the history is it very much aligns with the present
5: i mean so i think it's I, i think it's incredibly important we learn from the history and i'm trying to say where should we be going next like what can we take away and how can we apply it today
2: I mean, yeah, like what we were talking about at the beginning, like the railroad union voted to go on strike and then the judge is like, nope, sorry, you can't fuck you. Like there's only so much they'll allow you to do in the system. And sometimes you have to go outside the system and, you know, build people power rather than like political power agreed to actually accomplish these things. Now, I mean, you know, maybe if there is a legislative solution to this kind of thing, Great. Like, that's awesome. I'm not going to like solution
5: is a very big word.
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll be something that gets watered down by Nancy Pelosi. Not even (laughs) though I I don't think there is any legislative solution.
5: I think there are ways in which legislation can make unions stronger, which can build people power. There you go. Yeah. But I also think that like in a previous episode, like how we talked about how the labor movement kind of attached itself to the Democratic Party without any conditions. And so I think it's like, hey, if they're going to like support union legislation, cool, do it. But like, I'm not going to tell people to vote for you. You're not going to get our endorsement. But like I said before, buy a politician. They're fucking cheap. They're very inexpensive. They get a fucking $2,000 check from some company and they're writing legislation for them. AFL-CIO, where the fuck are you? Buy a politician. I mean, come on state reps I, who gives a fuck people you've never heard of go buy them they will write legislation call it bipartisan who gives a fuck put an amendment in there that takes aim at the taft Hartley act so like there are Can I a little bit power. yeah i'm just saying there's ways to use this power in which you're not making yourself beholden to like some idiot capitalist party but like get shit done like i i'm i'm okay with whatever tactic you got as long as you get something fucking done Go ahead, Brandon.
0: I think there's a lot of tactics that can fall into the purview of what you were just saying. And all of that ultimately boils down to is get to know your coworker. Like I'm yeah. finally blessed with being in a union and I'm very close to already doing things that are outside of what the union considers acceptable. And I'm cool yeah. with that. Like if they kick me out, they kick me out. But like get to know your fellow workers stand up for them. There comes a certain point where it doesn't matter that everything that you're saying is outside of the purview of the union itself. If every one of your coworkers has your back, that's a win, dude.
5: I agree. I just think we do need to get the unions to be more like you is what I think. So like me, well, Like drunk like, like, like hammered off their face? Well, anyway, yes, like you in many ways, not always. But next question here on the list. How should we think about political education for union membership? Is it better to have larger unions or more radical members? I don't know what people's thoughts are on that, but anybody got anything on that?
0: Yes, there's an intersection between the two. Correct. Beyond that, I've got nothing.
1: (laughs) I don't think it'd be a problem to have a larger base as long as you're still moving them towards radicalization. But it's like if you have a larger base and then as a result, you're moving towards centrism or basically towards the right, then yeah, you're shooting yourself in the foot that way.
0: But moving towards centrism from the far right is still
1: progress. (laughs) Oh, I mean, if that's where you're starting, yeah.
5: Well, I think what you're kind of getting at is almost the liberal approach versus the radical approach. You can, as a radical get regular centrist, even conservative working people on board with the union and work towards, okay, well let's work with what we have in common. We want better wages, better working conditions. Everyone can agree to that. But like the liberal version is like, well, if we want to appeal to these people, we have to be like fucking weird transphobes and racists and shit. And you're like, no wrong lesson. That's not it. no, (laughs) So I think you're kind of spot on
0: there, Mike. That's where it gets into the very difficult territory of like, you can't back down from what you believe.
5: I agree. I think you should be out front with what you believe. And I think it would help if we had more socialist and communist labor organizers who were clear and like, I'm a communist. You don't have to agree with me and you don't have to like communism, but I'm going to win you a fucking better wage. I'm going to make your workplace better. And when people start realizing that it's the communists who are fighting for them, that is a very good position to be in. Brian, you had
2: something. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I was going to say, you know, the approach that Ruther took with the civil rights uh, movement was interesting because he was going against a lot of the largely white membership of his union in what they wanted. But he was also kind of going with a much milder softer version of the civil rights movement than what a lot of the black members of his union wanted like the people in drum and they rightly called him out for it you know he wasn't going far enough and so by trying to appease the moderates he really didn't get a whole lot done i mean he did definitely support the civil rights movement in the sort of official channels the mainstream part of it but you know not the the radical you know people on the ground with actual problems
5: Yes. Yeah. I think one of the things we can kind of learn is that Walter did actually explicitly ask how far in front of the membership can the union leaders go? How progressive mm. can I be? Right. And I think the answer to that question is you could be as fucking progressive as socialist as whatever you fucking want. There really aren't consequences. You can the be as capitalists don't as you want. Have your
0: back. You can say what you want to say.
5: Yeah, you can be out as far in front of your union membership as you can possibly be. And the farther out left you are, the more left your union will be. Your members will follow because we talked about how there was rampant racism within the UAW. And yet when it came to civil rights actions, there was no bigger contingent present than UAW members. When the leadership is out in front and very clearly speaking to what they believe in, The membership follows and so i think that that is an important thing is like there aren't consequences to not capitulating to the moderates in your union fuck them right drag them along they like the wage they like the better working conditions if they don't they can leave the union
2: okay and confirm Go make less go ahead it's kind of like all these democrats are like oh we don't want to say that scary s word the socialism word you know we're going to be moderate and it's like well The conservatives are going to think that you're commies anyways like who fucking cares just be a communist yes yeah just do it come on and so i think this goes to what can the
5: unions do today but i think political education is probably an important thing because there's a lot of workers today who are represented by unions and don't understand any labor history don't know why they have their benefits they think literally they're like oh the union's just taking my dues and whatever and it's Sometimes it's hard to blame them for thinking that because a lot of unions kind of are losing. They kind of suck, and they're not doing what they're supposed to do because they're not radical. But like, I think that if unions were getting on front of like, hey, once a month, we have a class on political ideologies. And you don't have to be a communist, but if you're curious about, here's what socialism is. Here's what communists did in the labor movement. Like, you could move people to the left if they fucking knew. If they actually understood what was going on, they would move to the left. And when your membership moves left, the union has more power.
3: Can I jump in real quick? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of summarize what I think of pretty much everyone is saying, the dumb guy terms that I understand things in, is that (laughs) if you consider yourself at all left of center, even slightly, moving to the right in any way, shape, or form will do nothing but lose people to the left of you. It will yep. never, ever gain anyone to the right of you. Never. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. The only thing it's gonna do is lose
2: people to the left. That's it. Agreed. I got I have a, a car analogy for this. You know, yes. if you right, here we go, this is what we're here for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're driving in the left lane and people are passing you on the right, that means you fucked up. Move over to the right and let people pass you on the left. That's how it's supposed to work. And if people on the left. Speak up! <laughs> if people on the left are criticizing you from the left, then maybe you fucked up, you know? Yeah. Like, get out of
0: the
5: left lane. Move it.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I hate to say that that's completely accurate, but that's completely fucking accurate. <laughs> Thank you. If people to the left of you are criticizing your position, you don't need to criticize back. You need to introspect about your own position. True. Exactly. I like it.
5: I like it. Then I've also got here, um, how should we think about the very real pressures placed on unions by the global capitalist system? Since capital can move abroad and workers can't, and competition is undeniably global between workers and businesses, unions seem to be in an ever-weakening position by default. How can we address these realities in the future? That's sort of a tough one but does anybody have any thoughts on it?
6: I mean, personal anecdote: I'm somebody who works in a union, been a union man for 11 years now, and oh, my mic's fucking up. You one second here. While Mark
4: was saying that, oh god, there we go. What's what's up? I was gonna say if we just kill more workers with pandemics, then there'll be less of us, and then we can drive up our
3: wages.
6: <laughs> oh <You know>, Jesus. <laughs> You want to talk history, we're, we're going to say like we need like some sort of bubonic plague to, to yeah. cause well, guilds we'll, to rise we'll up again? Mercantilism,
4: and then we'll get to capitalism. So maybe if we have another couple like really bad plagues, then we can move into some sort of thing where we actually give shit about workers. Yeah. <laughs> like, this one wasn't bad enough. We need to kill more.
2: <laughs> we need to kill a third of America, and then in 800 years, we'll have uh, socialism, maybe? <laughs> nah <laughs> it wouldn't even work
6: like that it would be uh, democratic like socialism at best <laughs> sorry Mark oh yeah so like just something as easy as you know the quit your union postcards that I probably get one of them a week what the what excuse you, me <laughs> you don't get so there's you know ever since, ever since um, with the Janus decision right. right it basically decided that you can't charge Oh, yep. The right to work. Yeah. When I first joined, everybody in my employment has to be at least a partial union member. So you can pay 100 percent dues or you can pay 80 percent dues. Right. But the Janus Supreme Court decision basically made that illegal. So we get everybody in my union gets mailed these postcards probably at least one or two a month. We get these postcards in the mail where if you fill out your name and you, you know, your ID, your information on it, the postcards have a self-addressed, you know, stamp on it that it will be mailed to my unions. It's basically CWA. So huh. this third-party political action committee sends out emails and postcards all the time, saying like, "Hey, if, if you fill out this postcard and mail it, you'll quit your union and they'll stop taking out your union dues." So something that I always do is, I know when I get one in the mail, everybody else in my office has gotten the mail, and I talk to them about, "Hey, did you get that postcard in the mail?" Like this is bullshit and this is what it's about. And just having those conversations, it seems like a simple thing, but just having those conversations is a, you know, that kind of coalition building that you guys have been talking about before doesn't seem like a big win, but like telling people not to quit your union and explaining why you're getting this mail and who it's coming from just kind of opens people's eyes to, you know, these are the forces at play. They want you to quit your union and this is why you need it. Yeah. Jesus. Also, just like, I could say, New Jersey kind of had, I know it's been like Debbie Downer a lot of this uh, this episode, but New Jersey had a pretty cool legislative win recently, partially because of the actions of the union that I'm in. Uh, New Jersey passed, I don't think it's been signed by the governor yet, but it's passed the state assembly and state senate. It's called the Responsible Collective Negotiations Act. People should look into it. It's kind of cool. It basically... It expands the scope of bargaining for state government like, Good. employees. So, Good, because um, they are
5: very limited.
6: Yes, and that same act also on a state level allows the union to charge non-union members for the cost of arbitration. So it's a little push and pull. It's like, hey, this law is going to allow my union to negotiate a broader array of issues, and it kind of gives the union more teeth to pull people in again. Cause it's like, Hey, we're going to charge you one way or the other. So you might as well be a full employee and get the full benefits, you know? Yeah. Like they're CWA doing good work, at least where I live. And uh, CWA is who? who's that again? It's uh communication workers of America. Okay. They are a national and I think they even have, I think they're in Germany too. Yeah. I think they're in Frankfurt and they're in London also. But, yeah, it's a wide array of communication workers. So a lot of Verizon, if you're in a union for Verizon, you're CWA. Flight attendants are in CWA. I'm in government communications. Gotcha. So some public health care, some, like, broadcast people. CWA's been doing good work. And, yeah, they're pretty out in front about being, at least having a progressive-facing agenda outside of the workforce like they've definitely been talking about the pro act they were showing up during all of the racial injustice protests of the past two summers essentially so while it seems like the sky is falling and the capitalists are always going to win on a personal level i've been feeling the power of the unions been definitely feel like i have somebody in my my corner when it comes to you know negotiating for pay and working conditions and all that stuff Oh, yeah, we currently have a grievance against the state of New Jersey because they haven't come up with a plan to build remote working into a contract, so I think that's gonna be a major sticking point in our next good you know negotiation, but like currently we, we at least like are taking the first steps. we filed a grievance saying like the workers have demonstrated the ability to perform as good of a service whether they're in their offices or working remotely, so we're going to file a grievance and make you take action on it. Like,
5: That's sweet. I, I would yeah. I actually, I hope that more unions kind of take note of that. That's a good thing to fight for. Yeah. I, I do think that recently we've started to see the bubbling up of union power. Finally, like it's been asleep for all this time, which is again, why I think this story is important to tell now. Like we have to like, what are we going to do going forward? How are we going to fix things? So then the uh, last question I have here is kind of one of my favorites. How should we think about, quote unquote, legality in future labor struggles? You know, if the game is rigged by the ruling class and lawmakers, can anything be gained by playing by the rules, such as like how Walter did it? What alternatives might exist and what might be the costs of abandoning these notions of legality? So like to me, I look at the number of times that unions file a grievance with the NLRB and say... You know, this company was doing unfair labor practices during this union election. And what do they get for that? They get another election. But I forget what the statistic is, but like, I think it is in 70 or 80 percent of cases, the second union election after that, the union does worse. The vast majority of times, the union gets fucked the second time around. So to me, I'm going, okay, let's say the union instead tried to do something illegal. What would be the consequence if they did an unfair labor practice. What would the NLRB do? Say you lost motherfuckers, you lose every time. Anyway, you're in the same fucking boat. Yeah. So to me, I want to say, I want to fucking win. That that to me is I'm like, yo, I want to win. So why are we following these fucking rules? And even if we weren't okay, make them prove it, right? It's hard to prove that a company did an unfair labor practice. It's so hard to prove that it was intentional what they actually did. It's all secret emails and shit. So, Put the companies in the same boat, right? You think we did this illegal thing? Okay, well, what evidence you got? Fucking prove it. To me, that's just, I don't see there's that many consequences for bending the rules a little bit and maybe not having such a clean nose or whatever, you know. Any other thoughts uh, from folks on legality? Yeah, Brian.
2: Uh, Nothing really on legality. Something on the last question just made me think of like how Saudi Arabia is exporting Wahhabist Islam to all these different countries by building mosques and whatnot and importing imams. And I was just thinking, like, what if there was, you know, a group or say China or someone who was like, you know, building union halls and like starting unions in all these other countries to like build worker power? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what that would look like, but I think it would be cool.
6: I mean, I think on the legality front, anything you've been seeing out of unions has been kind of a loss lately. I mean, I think of something that's a little hyperlocal. IBEW, right? Johnny Doherty and Bobby Heenan are going to jail. Not saying everything they did was good, but like they were guys that were pretty big advocates for the electrical union in Philadelphia. And they were kind of involved with the Verizon strike a little bit. What would have been on a Verizon strike in Philadelphia? And one of them's facing a twenty-year sentence. Ouch. Yeah. So, like, again, you want to talk about like, hey, we, all right, maybe we got some, you know, politically connected guys in a major metropolitan area that can kind of advocate on the side of labor. And it's like, know, the second they start kind of crossing the line, they get clapped.
5: I you know? so I don't know this story specifically, but I don't know what line of legality that they cross necessarily, but like. <laughs> Go ahead.
6: They were so. long story short. They were charged with misusing union funds, which it's complicated. Yeah. And the other thing was basically corrupting a public official. So like, all right, if I'm a business and I want to put a politician in my pocket, all I need to do is send them a, uh, you know, a campaign donation.
5: Yeah. I'm confused as to why they would do anything besides that. The bribes are legal. Why would you illegally do
6: it? It's legal. (laughs) it seems like it's one set of rules for you know labor and it's another set of rules for capital i mean bobby heenan and, and johnny mm. Doherty have some you know they're going to go to jail for honest services fraud probably but like when a yeah. when a business does so careful does it, with it, the money. Makes sense. Yeah. Careful
5: with the money careful on anything with a paper trail. However, beyond <laughs> that <laughs> that's what i'm getting at for example and you can bleep this if you want, but I want to leave it in. I'm just saying, when management starts pressuring people about, oh, don't join the union, oh, it's bad, blah, 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 I just think it would be cool if they got their fucking tires slashed. (laughs) Or, for example, if in the process of preparing to paint your uh, Miata, for example, where I did say the best way to remove paint is chemical stripper. Now, let's say you parked your Miata nearby a car for management and you accidentally spilled chemical stripper on their brand new BMW. Well,
3: that's just an an, unfortunate coincidence. An unfortunate coincidence that that, it it happened
5: when they're union busting. I'm just saying, and maybe the union leaders don't have to write that in an email, but you know, little wink, wink, nod, nod, go ahead and prove that I said, accidentally go and trip with a knife in your hand near the tires of the boss who's, threatening you, uh, you know, who's (laughs) to say?
4: (laughs) But here's the problem, right? Like there's a material sense in which so many people are scared of losing their damn jobs. And like what Mark was saying is the hammer will come down on them hard. Meanwhile, mailboxes can get tampered with, you know, for union elections. And as long as it's a major corporation doing it, nothing happens. Oh, we get a redo. You know, yeah, we have as workers too much to lose.
5: It, it is a tough question, and I don't think that we're necessarily going to solve it on this podcast, but like I want to put it into the minds of people like we have to address this. We have to think about how do we get around in a system in which the rules are not applied fairly? I, agree with, we, I agree with you. I agree What it. can we do? And that's why I keep asking that question. I don't know the answer. I'm not a labor organizer. But if you call yourself a labor organizer, you should be thinking about this question. You should be thinking about how do we go forward from here. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, impress upon people. And there could be someone listening to this set of episodes who might one day be a labor leader themselves. And I would hope that they have some kind of thoughts on this question. That's pretty much all the questions that I wanted to go through in this, like, what are our takeaways kind of section. And I wanted to make some actual tangible suggestions like for how we can move forward. And so as promised, uh, I entitled this section and I can see Brandon's gone from his computer, but whatever, I think he would appreciate this too. I entitled this section, what is to be done? Hey,
1: (laughs) know a guy who had a few things.
5: (laughs) So um, I know, Mike, you did have some suggestions, so I I actually would like to hear yours. I think that first one you mentioned about the uh, quote-unquote Black Strike Fund. Awesome. Fucking excellent idea. What else you got up your sleeve?
1: Kind of related to that is something that has been rolling around in my mind for a long time since I read A People's History of the United States, the Howardson book. And I've been meaning to revisit it, and if I had done any show prep for today, I would have tried to find the section uh, that talks about this thing. Apparently, at some point, there was a union or an organization of some kind that was providing basically a place that anyone could go to for about two bucks a day at the time like what it was the equivalent of two dollars a day it's probably two cents at that point yeah. and you could just be there all day you could just exist and it literally was just to take the pressure off of the worker of capitalism that commodifies your very existence like if you have a place that you can just go and exist for the entire day for a reasonable amount of money that you could either get somehow or just even panhandle that takes a whole lot of pressure off and then I, I feel like that's something that could be done and I think you can Already anticipate the hurdles that would happen. Like you'd have to make sure that it doesn't get infiltrated and used to the purposes of the capitalists and right wingers, of course, because you're gonna have disaffected people of all kinds who are gonna gravitate to this place. So you have to make sure that you're not getting a bunch of like alt-right buckheads coming in there with their rhetoric. So you have to kind of from the outset state that this is a place that accepts everyone and will not tolerate any kind of bigotry. And that right there will prevent anything from happening. And if you can make it so that it, it intentionally pushes people left, that right there I think would be a huge step in radicalizing. A huge part of the working force, because how useful would it have been during the pandemic if you had a place that you could go and you don't have to worry about if you're getting evicted? I think um, actually,
5: kind of related to that, I, I've noticed that past generations, like my parents' generation and stuff, they have uh, social clubs and stuff. They and they do little fundraisers and stuff, but there's just they have a meeting place and they have useless meetings about useless things, but they also have fun they play cards, they shoot pool, they do whatever, and they run little tournaments and shit. And I think if you could have a leftist version of that, just a national uh, social club where it's like, oh, there's a little branch in your town and oh, Oh, I know to my the what? A national social club, you say? okay, (laughs) shit. (laughs) Hold on. on. (laughs) Different thing. I don't know. (laughs) Well, and so if there was a local place to you, like I'm going to... You know, whatever they have, Uh, they've got Lions clubs and Mustangs
1: clubs and whatever the fuck else. If there was a leftist version of that. To your point, I just want to say that our parents' generation, it's a known statistic. There were more people, people of that generation, there were more of them in just bowling leagues alone than there are of millennials and Gen Z in all social clubs combined. Like any kind of organization that you would take part in, whether it's like fucking roller derby, autocross, whatever the fuck, they had more people in bowling leagues alone than all of those that we have today
4: yeah and, and, we're an atomized society we're all yeah. on our own that's capitalism on a philosophical level we all need our own homes we all need our own cars we all need our
6: own little basements to play video games you know, if i have to borrow a tool from you it means i have failed as an individual exactly if you are 30 and you have to live in
4: your parents house you're a failure This is the philosophical, like, uh, outcomes of all this. And that's why, like, mutual aid seems like such a foreign concept. We're so, we're all, there's seven of us on this, and we're all sitting states away from each other because we want to grasp out and reach to people that are like us, but we're not in a hall down the street because everyone's tied to TV in their own home, in their own little bubble.
5: Yeah. So I think like political organizations are a good thing to join, but also we should have leftist social clubs where we could just meet and hang out, have a fucking beer. I think that would be cool.
4: And maybe not even talk about politics, just talk about like existing, you know? Yeah.
5: Yeah. Uh, Bryant and then uh, Mike, you had something
2: too. Yeah. I was going to say like in our parents or maybe grandparents generation, a lot of those spaces were union halls. That was the social, place for people to hang out and you know like i don't know how to recreate that exactly i think the closest thing that we have to that existing right now that's just a public place that you can go without being expected to pay money for something is the public library and i get a lot of library books because i don't like paying for books and uh (laughs) or movies for that matter i get dvds at the library and then copy them onto my hard drive because it's easier than nice. dealing with BitTorrent. <laughs> um, but, anyways, whenever I'm at the library, I see teenagers playing Fortnite and like old people checking Facebook on the computers there. Like, if you don't have anywhere else to go and you don't have a lot of money, like go to the library and hang out on the computer. What if we had something like that for left wing people, union people, whatever? I don't know what shape that would be exactly, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. Mike, uh, you had something? I think the idea of a place where you can just go and exist for very little to no money, I think the goal of that should be outright to attract people who are obviously disaffected, who really need that, but then to constantly improve it. Try to make it a place that people actually want to go. Like, try to make that preferable. And if you can do that, if you actually had a network of those that existed around the country and kept in touch with each other and constantly shared tactics on how to beat the law enforcement when the city tries to nitpick you about whatever code they possibly can to shut you down, because that's absolutely what's going to happen at the first opportunity. Once you start taking money out of the business owners' pockets in every city, they are going to go after you with every force that they possibly can. So it would be necessary to organize these and share tactics how to combat that. But like I said, make it something that people actually want to do. I mean, there's so many things you could do with something like that. And you could make it so that it's not just keeping people in a shelter, hopefully feeding them. But then maybe it could also be hooking them up with long-term housing or jobs or something that you know can actually help improve their material conditions. And then, yeah, an extension of that could also be like something for the people who are doing okay but still feel this alienation. I forget, again, what socialist organization it was, but they were renting out halls and having the citizens come there, and they would just teach them Marxism. They would just literally just talk to them. And in layman's terms, I tell them, like, this is why you're feeling this way. This is why you don't have any time to get all the errands done. This is why you really can't get ahead financially even though you're working all these long hours. It's like the things that are actually affecting people's daily lives and the things that they are really feeling on that gut level. And if you brought people together and talked to them about these things, you could wake up a lot of people provided you from the outset, keep that from going into reactionary territory.
4: You know, it's funny, man. You know, the closest place that I've gotten to that is I went to uh, Mark, get your beer ready because you're going to have to drink. I went to a punk rock show. Take a drink. Job. And it was in a basement and, you know, some girl saying about getting over addiction and dealing with a bunch of super personal issues, but it was in somebody's basement and it's not a venue, but like, you know, I paid, uh, I paid like five bucks to get in the door so it's the band could make a little bit of mind. money. It's always, yeah. Five and then you know, I paid a, a couple dollars for a beer that went to the house You know, it was a group, I guarantee you, everybody in there was pretty fucking lefty. And you go in there with uh, $10 in your pocket, you can get two beers and you can go see a show, you know. And those are the kind of spaces. It doesn't have to be this thing where it's, uh, I've rented a hall and I'm going to do everything by the book. No, it can be a punk show in a basement. You know, it can be six blocks from your house and it can be 20 kids, you know, that are kind of sweaty and stinky and may have some drug problems. But, you
1: know, like maybe working on getting a little bit better. Yeah. The only reason I mentioned the halls and that level of organization. Yeah, that wasn't because, a to
4: get you, Mike.
1: <laughs> no, I, I totally get it because you're right. And I think organically, if it took off that way from punctures, that would be fantastic. I just wanted to get past the point where when it actually starts becoming effective and actually starts posing a threat to any, like local capital. Oh, they, yeah, yeah. They are able to resist that because they're organized and they know how to do it. Because yep. that's where things like Chaz and every other like kind of uh, horizontal project just kind of falls apart.
6: No, oh, we're gonna need just a really big basement. <laughs> like the biggest basement you can find.
4: Yeah, that's the that's what's held the punk movement down, uh
6: the lefty punks,
4: is that we haven't developed a large enough basement yet. But once
5: we get basement physics figured out at a massive scale. landlord Lord science there. It's bigger on the inside <laughs> than it is on the outside.
3: <laughs> we just need to connect every basement in one neighborhood to each other and have like a, a series of basements. An underground um, network of basements. Yes. Yeah.
2: The basement underground. Uh, Brian, yeah, I, I was just going to say that reminds me that a few months ago there was a real estate listing for an old missile silo in Colorado. That would be the world's largest. Basement, I box at the
6: door, baby. <laughs> Yo.
2: Know, how much was it? Was it absurd, I'm sure? Uh, it was under a
3: million. Okay. Wait, so, wait. So $5 divided by a million. Yeah. How many? <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, so I did write down some suggestions. Again, to point out that unions could do a lot of shit that they're not currently doing. And I think we should expect a little bit more from the unions that exist today. So kind of one of the big ones that I want to get out of the way first, just because I think a lot of the other things would follow from it is to bring back the flying squadron, the flying squadron that we, I think I could I swear I mentioned it when we were talking about the 1930s organizing efforts, but the flying squadron was like the non union member supporters of the union who would when you know the police were there whatever they would go and pick it with the workers so the flying squadron existed it was a semi-illegal thing but like it was just a loose organization of people who supported the union bring that back like when unions represent like whatever it is six percent of the working population um i'm pretty sure there are more people who actually support the unions than who are in unions What do we do? Right. I'm not a union worker. What What can I do? Right. I'm not in the union. They don't represent me. They don't do shit. And I think the unions in general need to kind of shift their focus from representing their membership to representing workers in general to like broaden, like what they're actually doing, because it's like, hey, your membership is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the working population. And I think they really need to start engaging people who are left out of that. So like myself, right? I'd love to help, but I'm not in a union. What can I fucking do? And I think that unions have really let the ball drop where it's like, hey, you have all these people ready and willing to help you. Where are you? Do you not want the help? I don't get it. So, like, this could exist both online and in the street. Uh, I think technology gives the Flying Squadron more potential than it has ever had in the past. And we saw what it can do in some of the earlier struggles. You know, people could pay dues to help fund labor actions and shit like that. Or if it was online, like, you could have a small labor action for a union that represents a thousand workers and have 20,000 people involved in online campaigns. Like that would amplify union power tremendously if we could focus it, And so someone just needs to set up these networks, you know, should probably be like the (laughs) AFL-CIO, like, come on, get your shit together. And so like a flying squadron would enable things like bringing back workplace sabotage. I don't think we see enough of that anymore, but that used to be very effective. Or things like boycott signs at the point of sale. So like, think about how this could have been used in the Kellogg's strike, for example. Most average people had no idea that they were crossing the picket line during the strike. They need to be told when boycotts are happening or the boycotts don't fucking work. Obviously, unions need to do a better job getting the word out. So like, if you go to the grocery store, no one can stop you from going in with a little tiny sign to stick on the Kellogg's cereal aisle to just say, Hey, Kellogg's workers are on strike and they're requesting a boycott until they get better working conditions. How many people who aren't even radical, who aren't even whatever, would be like, oh, I should pick a different cereal? Like, you don't need to be a fucking communist to support this kind of stuff. And so, sure, I myself could do this, right? I can make this little sign and put it up, and that's fine and dandy. I stop 10 people from buying cereal, but like, if the union could get the word out through something like a flying squadron online, where they knew, oh, hey, we pre made these little cards. Go ahead and put them up in the grocery store or whatever the fuck it is, your little sign that says, hey, Kellogg's workers are on strike or Nabisco yeah, workers is a are really on good strike. Idea. I, but like someone has to get the word out. And I'd like to also point out that I get the word from lefty fucking meme pages. That's embarrassing
6: that is downright
5: <laughs> embarrassing yeah you're not wrong Like, right like so it's like hey afl cio all the resources in the fucking world and i have to hear about this shit from turn leftist 1917 <laughs> not a dig not a dig it, you guys by the way
4: that even are like friend. a mailer right like yes you know use the tactic that mark was talking about earlier where he gets a mailer to be anti-unionist Send mailers out like, hey, Kellogg's is on strike. Send it out to areas that uh, would be affected. I don't know. Send it to New York City and to Philadelphia and to San Antonio. Say, hey, these people are on strike
6: for this reason. Don't buy Kellogg's. Yeah, Bill, that sounds dangerously close to secondary boycott, which is strictly illegal (laughs) by the Taft-Hartley Act.
5: Here's the thing. So the secondary strike is made illegal by the Taft-Hartley Act. For other unions to support the strikes or to strike a parent company of the company which they are aggrieved by. It does nothing to stop people like us from taking action. You're a fucking citizen. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You can say whatever the hell you want. Or, for example, if there was a flying squadron, I, a fucking citizen, non-union member, could go pick it outside a dealership if the UAW is on strike. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. So like the union members can't do it, but I fucking can. And if I can get a few fucking friends, we can do that. And so a part of me wants to ask the question, hey, labor leaders, why is it that some idiot on a podcast is coming up with this? (laughs) (laughs) These are real suggestions made in earnest. Like you have options. You need to do it. Because what y'all have been doing for the last 80 years has not been working. And through our study of Walter Ruther, we can see that like, hey, we tried it this way and it was a good attempt. It was the best attempt that you could come up with and it didn't work. So what are we going to do now? How are we going to utilize pro-union sentiment for non-union members to get involved, right? Like the AFL-CIO, if they wanted today, could set up a donate. I could pay monthly for them to have some fucking funds. They could set up a Patreon for fuck's sake. $2 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever the fuck it is. I would like to put my money into this movement. And I think it would be helpful if other people could too. And I think there's a lot of willing participants to do that. So I don't want to hear anymore. Oh, we just don't have the money. Oh, our strike funds are too low. Bro, are you asking for fucking money? Try that. Well, what the fuck (laughs) are you doing? Do something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've been very critical of Walter Ruther through this study for good reason, but I think he was a smart labor organizer who probably by this time would have figured shit out. Like, all right, this is not working. We need to come up with a new tactic because that's what he was good at. And that is kind of why I'm making these suggestions. Like they are in the spirit of our study of Walter Ruther is like tactics are important. Yeah. We could also do shit like bad online reviews en mass. Go ahead. The company can't stop. Five hundred thousand people from leaving bad reviews on their shit. Awful social media campaigns. So we could just wreck their fucking marketing department. We could do that if we had some kind of organization to do it. We could use frivolous lawsuits so we can make it extremely costly for them to do business. And we could use discovery in court to dig up dirt on these companies. We could have worker lawsuits on mass. Uh, yeah,
2: Brian. I was going to suggest something illegal, so feel free to bleep this out, but uh, make a pirate radio station, do a max headroom and talk shit about them on the drive time radio station or whatever, you know?
5: You could do that. They could also set up legitimate radio stations or even, yeah, which they did do. The UAW did do that and it didn't work out super well, but like, we could try that again. <laughs> I think that... I mean, yeah. also,
4: I don't know where you guys are located, but in larger cities, there's hyper local radio stations. Yep. Even small radio stations like college level, that would be a great place to talk about like a, a local strike. You know, yeah. it doesn't then, always have to be big actions. It could be like, hey, everybody walked out of this sub shop because they're getting treated like shit. Don't go to that sub shop until they actually yeah. deal with these people better.
5: And I, I think we need to have unions that develop a, some kind of a media strategy, right? We, we've we been facing a hundred years of sophisticated propaganda Hey, assholes, time to wake up. Do something. Like, what are you talking? Get your fucking version of events out there. What are you doing? Buy ads on TV. Okay. Stop letting them trash you. Because the companies buy ads? It's like, well, you could buy ads too. In fact, that would be great. YouTube ads and Facebook ads, I'm pretty sure are actually very affordable. How many people are just not thinking about unions at all? Do a fucking commercial. Now, I I know everyone thinks, oh, commercials don't work. They You don't work on me. I'm immune to advertising. No, you're not. No one is. (laughs) Literally nobody is. The point of advertising is not to be like, you're like, I know what you're thinking. Oh, but when this ad comes on, I hate their company. It's like, yeah, cool. But did you think about their company? Yeah, you did. That's what advertising is about. So remind people that you exist. Oh, are you having trouble at work? Are your conditions not very good? Could your pay be a little bit higher? Call us. We'll help. Whatever the fuck it is. Who cares? I'm not a marketing person, but I know enough to say it would help if you did like a little, just a thought. So another tactic I've got here is like using the company's bullshit against them, like the money back guarantee, you know, how much would it cost to process millions of returns from quote unquote unsatisfied customers? I mean, you pick up a product, you look at the back and it says hundred percent money back guarantee. If you're not satisfied, cool. So when the workers are on strike, I mean, a lot of these products, you can go to the grocery store, you could buy four of them for very little money and return all of them and say you're not satisfied. The companies put that on the back because they think you're not going to use it. Nobody's doing money back guarantees, right? So they put it on the back because it's a marketing thing. But if you actually send shit back, it's super fucking costly to that. To send one of these things back for a money back guarantee would be the equivalent of them losing like 40, 50 sales. Hmm. Now, if we use that as a, tactic against them that's gonna fucking hurt so that's kind of the thing is like we need to think outside the box a little bit um now another thing this actually comes from walter ruther himself walter pledged a large donation to another union strike fund every month for the duration of a strike that should be replicated and expanded today so in this case it was the united farm workers i think it was in 1965 in fact the AFL CIO should maintain a large shared strike fund. They could make a Patreon and have people like me contribute to this money. Just imagine how much power union negotiators could have if they went into negotiate with the boss and they go, "Our union's got a pretty big strike fund. Uh, we could hold out for a long time." You really want to fuck with this? Or hey, we got on the phone to the AFL CIO. They're ready to give us the money. Would you like to know what the strike fund's at? It's at. However many millions, hopefully, right? You really think you're going to win this? That is leverage at the negotiating table. And when you have leverage at the negotiating table, you raise the wage for everyone, right? Even workers who are not represented by the union. The unions used to have a prevailing wage when they actually had power. We can kind of get that again. So, you know, I'm, that's the kind of shit I'm talking about. Is like, hey, there's people being willing to fund your operations. Let's maybe take advantage of that. The other thing is, um, there was recently a story about Amazon having curriculum in a public school now. Like they gave them $50,000 and they're like, hey, make a class for logistics experts or whatever. And it's literally has in the class like how to say no to unions and shit and like basically how to work for Amazon. So it's teaching high school kids how to be a good employee for Amazon and how much to hate the union. And so I say, AFL-CIO needs to answer this. So we need to do something like pro-union kids education, okay? Because you talk to young people now and they think, oh, the union just takes your dues and they They don't don't do anything for you. You know, 80 years of losing will fucking earn that kind of reputation. So we need to start educating kids, you know, whether there's a pro-union summer camp, right? So anyone who's in the union should get a discounted rate or if the local summer camp for your kids Happens to have a pro union education bit, that's good. I mean, it's not indoctrination, it's just, it's education. I I don't know what to tell you. The right's doing it. We should do it too. Um, So, summer camp or a little version of scouting, but it's pro union or something. And they teach you labor history and skills for like joining a union later and telling kids that it's okay to not work in a fucking office someday. You don't have to go get this kind of degree. You can be in a trade. You can be represented by a union. Shit like that. There's all kinds of suggestions that I think unions need to take. And to that end, I wanted to kind of close here with what can you do, the union supporter? Like, what can you do right now? So the things that I've got here are you could consider a job with union representation. I know there's a lot of people who are listening who might be working retail or doing a job that they kind of took, and they don't really like it that much, or for whatever reason, you could consider a union job. Like Always an option. Sometimes it can be very hard to get into unions, and that is a problem that I think unions need to address too, making it not so fucking difficult to get in, because they have bonkers-ass requirements and weirdo shit, but they can address that too. But if you are looking for work, maybe consider a union job. You could also consider working directly for a union. Unions, just like any other organization, company, state agency, they need workers. They need people to do their paperwork and keep their books and all this shit. They have workers just like anybody else. And I feel like this is a problem where it's like, I'm always, you know, oh, I'm looking for a new job, this or that. And it's like, have you put in an application at the local union? I don't know fucking try it. They usually pay better than minimum wage. Whatever the case may be, you could work for a union. And I think that anybody who's listening to this show would be a fucking asset at a union and to have more people like us getting into unions, even at a low level and working our way up the ranks, probably a good thing to do. Cause we all keep talking about how unions are going to play a big part in us moving in any potentially revolutionary direction. And time is of the essence, right? We're quickly running out of time. So if you're looking for work, I don't know, put in an application at a union especially younger listeners or something, there's plenty of work to be done. They need negotiators. They need people to clean their spaces, whatever. You could go more work for Send me uh, a
0: personal DM. I will try and get you into my union.
5: Yes. Send uh, Brandon a DM, which you want to, I don't know, put out your Instagram or something, or you could message us on Instagram. Yeah, do
0: that. But I'm G10JunkMan on Instagram. That's the only way know. to find me.
5: Yeah, ask around, try and get into a union. Like, they need workers just like anyone else. And so, anyone listening to this show would be fucking excellent to be in a union. It's very easy to overlook that option. But, like, I'm hoping there's someone listening right now who's like considering changing jobs or something. Yeah, I'm talking to you. You can put in an application, try it out.
2: I don't know if you already, if you were going to get to this, maybe work for a union, maybe volunteer as a labor organizer, maybe even be a salt. You know, I've met a few people, if you have good interpersonal skills and you're good at speaking to fellow workers, you know, you can be assault, which is basically you're getting a job in the aim of starting a union at that business. So you're getting a job there to talk to your coworkers to start a union. And even if you don't do that through official channels, you can just talk to your coworkers and try to start a union you don't have to go through any like official channels or whatever, but like are
5: there official channels for that. I'm
2: not sure I'd have to ask someone, but I do know someone that was doing that, that, uh, that helped organize the workers at Denver international airport.
6: I mean, salting Um, is salting is how the Starbucks workers campaign got underway pretty much.
5: Yeah. So there's a great option. Then if none of those work, obviously not everyone's in a position to do that or, you know, it doesn't work out for whatever reason. So I wanted to present some other options here. You know, people tell you to like write your congressperson, but you know, that doesn't do a goddamn thing, right? That doesn't do shit. Don't write your congressperson. It's pointless. Wrong Please your
0: congressperson.
1: You. <laughs> Much more
0: effective.
5: <laughs> I refuse <laughs> to elaborate on what I said. So instead, you could write to unions to show support for a real left agenda. I think more unions really ought to hear from people like us. So that end, I do have a few specific suggestions. Now, I want to be clear. No idea if this will work. No idea if this matters. I, I really don't know. But Congress people get a fuckload of emails and letters, and they have an automated system for ignoring. It's literally built in. To my knowledge, nobody's writing union bosses and labor leaders. I don't think anybody's doing that. The liberals sure aren't. So fuck 'em. I say we should be making our voices heard because they're not listening to our podcasts. They're not seeing our memes much as I'd like to believe that they are. They're They're not. not. And so I think they have this perception that, Oh, we just don't have power. Oh, we got to capitulate to the moderates and the conservatives. And I think they need to hear that. Like we exist and we're here to support you, but you need to fucking one do something. Right. So all these suggestions that some idiot on a podcast or a bunch of idiots on a podcast, just pulled out of our asses. And it's like, you mean to tell me after fucking how many goddamn decades you couldn't come up with any of this? Come on. So we should let them know that we have expectations. You, you need to represent fucking workers and you need to do a better job. Maybe writing some letters to people to put some pressure on them. We might be able to push them left because we're not pushing Democrats left. That's please don't think that that's possible, but we can push labor left. I think. I don't know, but it is an actionable thing that you could do. And I also think it's especially good if you could send a letter through the mail, right? Put a stamp on an envelope. Cause like, I don't own stamps. I have not mailed something ever, but like for this, I promise by the time this episode comes out, I will own stamps and I will put them on envelopes and put those envelopes into the fucking mail to union leaders, to let them know that you need to do something and there is a support for a broader left agenda. I think that would be noticed if younger people especially would put stamps on letters to people. So for that, I've got here that the current president of the AFL-CIO, her name is Liz Schuler, and that's L-I-Z-S-H-U-L-E-R, and you can address letters to her at the AFL-CIO headquarters at 815 16th Street, Northwest, Washington, DC, 20006. Yeah, let her know how you feel about how unions have been going and what they could do to improve things. I would also highly recommend sending a letter or an email to the president of your state AFL-CIO office, as well as the branch office most local to you. So that may or may not be the same, but These are the people that need to see support for a left agenda as well as understand that there are actually expectations that they fucking do something. We are suggesting real and tangible changes right now that they can get going with tomorrow, literally tomorrow. We just need to put a little pressure on these people. If you you like type in your state and Federation of Labor, you'll find out who that boss is and you can send them a letter like do some shit because I don't think they're getting too many letters from regular people. I really don't. I don't think that's a common thing. So hopefully worth a little something. I mean, there are more effective things than letters. Letters can't
1: hurt. So,
5: yeah, Uh, yes, yes. Well, Let's be clear. There's definitely more effective things. But unfortunately, I find that like when you're not a union member and you're not like I can't run for something in a union or whatever, you're like, well, what can you do? Voting seems pointless, but like pushing labor left is probably a good thing or at least a good start. There's also a couple specific people that you can send letters to. One of those people is Cooper Carraway, spelled K-O-O-P-E-R. Carraway is C-A-R-A-W-A-Y. And in September 2020, he was elected president of the South Dakota Federation of Labor. At 29 years old, he became the youngest state labor federation president in the nation. The reason I know about him is because he showed up on Means Morning News, obviously explicitly socialist News show and he talked about kind of what he was driving towards and he definitely had a left agenda. Also a very, very prominent poster of Fred Hampton right in his office behind him. Based. Very based. So this is a based character. And I'm specifically saying write this guy. Or you can find his Instagram too and his Twitter. Message the guy. Like he's a cool fucking guy. He has a very clear left agenda and he is rising through the ranks pretty quick and at a pretty young age. So like, this is the kind of person who we need to like build some political capital for and to like, give some support to like, yeah, you're doing shit, right. That gets power for this guy. And if this is the kind of guy that you can, he's already president of a state federation of labor. There are not too many places above that. This is someone who will actually fucking listen, right. To what you might have to say. And this is someone who can actually do something. So I do highly recommend sending him a letter, and you can mail letters to PO Box 1445, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, zip code 57101. He also does list his email, which is not common. Most of these people don't list their emails, but uh, he does. It is kcarraway.aflcio at gmail.com. Yeah, send him a letter. I think he'll want to hear your suggestions because he's making some pretty big moves. Look into this guy. He's very cool. Also, if you're not bored yet, send letters to presidents of major unions and, you know, those that are represented on the AFL-CIO Executive Council. The Executive Council is pretty much who governs the AFL-CIO besides the actual leader. And they do all the thinking and these are the smoke-filled rooms where they make the, so far, bad decisions. They have made... For decades and decades, they have been making shitty, shitty, shitty decisions. So you can find who's on this executive council and you can write to those unions and let them know, hey, we have some expectations for you fucking idiots to do something because we've been losing for 80 fucking years. It's kind of about time we uh, try something different. So outside of those suggestions, I don't know, write or call any union leader in your area, whatever. Whatever they have to put up with hearing from us because uh, they've been failing for a long time. And I think it's time that they actually like listened a little bit to like, Hey, the playing squad. do something for people like me who want to help you. But what are our options for helping you? They're not asking for help. They're not asking for money. They don't have to be communists. They don't have to be super radical, but like, come on, you have to want to win a little, we can't keep losing forever. And so to that end, join a union or go work for a union and let them know from inside that, like y'all are fucking blowing it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. There's not much we can do, but whatever little bit we can do, let's do it. I think labor is going to be important for moving us in any potentially revolutionary direction. Yeah. That's all I got. That's the story of Walter Ruther. And his successes, his failures. And I think we need to kind of sit on what we can take away from that study and what we can do to move forward. And however we can push like the AFL CIO is a joke to me today. And so like you get people like, you know, this Cooper Caraway. he's a cool motherfucker. And I think that's the kind of a little bit of outside support would probably go a long way because most people couldn't name any other labor leader at all. So like anyone who's got any kind of recognition or whatever can actually do something.
0: It's it's a really easy thing to say, but it it can be difficult to do. Like even within my own union, recognizing the people who are in power and being on a, like a friendly basis with them, it it can be a lot. Yeah. But it, it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. It's just daunting at first.
5: Yeah, that's why I think just a simple, easy first step is reach out to these people and then look for what else you can do. We need to get them to at the very least create some kind of network for us to get involved because right now that doesn't exist. And that's, to me, fucking pathetic. I don't want to like be an asshole and just harp on it, but it's like, okay, you can change that tomorrow. I I,
0: I disagree with you for a specific reason of like, I don't want to disparage the people who are trying and just getting involved. It's not pathetic. Sometimes it's just step
5: one. Oh, I'm not. I'm talking about labor leaders. I'm not talking about regular fucking people. It ain't their fault. But you get like a Liz Shuler, who's the president of the AFL-CIO. Why am I not able to get involved? You haven't can't make a tab on your website. Like, what are you doing? Come on. That's who I'm that's who I'm arguing against here. Yeah, that's fair.
1: Well, I think that's about as good a place as any to wrap this up. Yeah. So, is there anything you guys want to plug other than your podcast? I think, by now, anyone who's listening to this has checked out the Cars and Comrades podcast, I would hope, by <laughs> this point. Anyone who's going to, yes. Yeah. Mark and Phil, do you guys want to plug anything by any chance? I don't know if you guys have anything you're trying to promote or anything.
6: Um, Take whatever car you have to autocross. It's fun. Yes. 100%. <laughs> that's pretty
1: cool.
4: I agree with that. I would say... Uh, I'd like to plug friendship. Call your best friend and uh, tell them you love them. <laughs> Mark, I love you. Yeah, I
0: love you. Oh. That seems corny, but like at the same time, I know some people that are struggling, and I'm sure that there's a few people that if you do that, they're going to appreciate it, so that's rad. It could be corny and also very helpful. Mike, love
4: you. And also, all the rest of you guys on this net, love you guys, too. Love you,
1: cool. uh, thank love you. too. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for joining so us. Love you guys. <laughs> all right, with that, with all the love going around, let me thank our Patreon subscribers really quick. So, thank you as always to Dear Bear Danuda. That's the Bear Jew. I love that. The Bear <laughs> Jew. Yeah. Vincent, Nicholas Maduro, Kalen, Gus, Kyle, Madman, Robert, Garden of Nurgle's Delights, Comrade Rev, Cosmic Crown, Michael, Van, Liquidated Bourgeoisie, Sigmund, Stuart, Pizzeria, Colton, El Robert. Allison, Zach, Ravenigma, Marvin, K Not Drinking Water 69, A Second James, Mad Boy, Elam, Venture X, Jared, The Australian One, Another Jared, Bill Killianaires, Bro Unimarks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, John Boby Fan 420, Kyle, Jean-Claude Manhans, Male, Bill, The Phil, All right. Well, I think that's all I have. Unless anybody else says anything. Yeah. Just in general. Thank you all for listening. Unless uh, unless Walter comes back from the dead. Yeah. Right. Cool.
5: Yeah. Sorry. That was so long. I know that was no no problem. But
1: no, I was going to wrap it up just by saying like, thank you for doing all that. I apologize for nothing. I, I, I can't tell you how much, Connor. I appreciate you doing all that work of like researching all of this and writing up all these notes and just running all these episodes because it's nice. I really enjoy getting to just take a backseat and kind of sit here for story time. So thank you. I appreciate it, man.
5: Yeah, it's, uh, it's the writing the notes that is like longest part of where I'm like, God, it takes longer yeah, every dude. time. I'm like, God, how does it take this fucking long?
1: <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, it was fun. Can't wait to do another one. All right. Well, thanks, yep, everybody. Sweet. Thanks, Mark. All right, all right, you all know, guys. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening.
2: Good to meet you guys. Take care. Bye. <laughs>
0: Socialism works, if it works at all, because it always has socialism to bail it out and and to subsidize
1: it. Ask any race, any real race. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning is winning.
3: In the 1980s, 50 corporations controlled most news media in America. By 1992, that number shrunk to two dozen. And today... Only six corporations control 90% of everything Americans see here in read. The money spent on the Iraq war alone, which killed 1 million people, 5% of Iraq's entire population, and planted the seeds for ISIS to flourish, could have covered all global investments to halt climate change trends.